Welcome to the very first episode of the Burning of the Midnight Amp podcast, where we will be dissecting music history one album at a time. My name is Foda. And my name is Tron. And my name is Chris. And in this podcast series, we will be discussing a whole range of different albums, as we all have a quite broad and varied musical taste. But the albums as a whole, a bit on the artist behind them, and a track-by-track -track discussion of each of the songs on the albums. And uh, in our discussions we had on which album to start with, we landed on an artist that we are all a big fan of, and that is David Bowie. And uh, why don't you, Kirstel, give us a short introduction on, on David Bowie? Of course, I would love to. David Bowie is probably an artist that uh, people who listen to this podcast will have heard of. It maybe is uh, very familiar to some, but we'll have a short introduction anyway. David Bowie is not this artist's real name. His real name was David Robert Jones. He was an Englishman born in England on the 8th of January 1947. And as an adult, he lived all over the world, but eventually he settled down in New York City, where he passed away on the 10th of January 2016. So geographically, he was something of a nomad, but also artistically, he was something of a nomad, changing his style, musical uh, style, aesthetical style throughout his uh, career. And as David Bowie, the stage name, he had a very long career. The career was uh, mostly as a singer and songwriter, a musician, but sometimes also as an actor. He uh, had his first record, his record debut, it was in 1964, with a single called Lisa Jane, credit, credited to a band called Davy Jones and the King Bees. And the first record he put out under his name David Bowie was I Can't Help Thinking About Me, a single released in 1966. And he continued to make albums right up until his death on Jan in January 2016. So in total we are speaking of 52 years of records, and that's a long time. But his career was not only long in years, it was also expansive in volume. He was a very productive artist for most of his career. As a recording artist, he released 26 studio albums under his own name, and also two more if you count the two albums he released under the band name of Tin Machine. And there's a lot of live albums and soundtracks and EPs and singles and you name it. He also collaborated uh, quite often with other artists. He made whole albums with other artists like Iggy Pop, where he wrote and produced music. And sometimes he just popped by the studio with... Uh, singing a few lines for other artists and other people's albums. And in this long, expansive career, he went through many changes, both musical, lyrical, visual, uh, and he's not unique in pop music history for doing this, but at the time he was unique in how often and how radical these changes was. So this is the reason why journalists often, often lacing, lazily, if you could say that, uh, call him the chameleon of rock. But the chameleon of rock is, in my opinion, a very poor metaphor. Because what the chameleon does is that he takes the uh, color of the environment uh, to make him invisible. And while you can accuse David Bowie of many things, uh, blending in is not one of them. Sometimes in his career he blended in, but mostly he did not. And, of 
course, in addition to all these stylistic changes, you also created many different stage personas and characters on this album, um, like Ziggy Stardust being probably the most famous. And all these changes in his career, in a way, it has forced what we could, in want of a better word, call the Bowie narrative uh, into a certain direction, where each new album and each new change is also uh, always viewed in the context of the last album and the last change as a reaction to that and so on. So this is something that continues throughout his career and it accumulates and when he passed away, there was so many different Bowies around in the world to choose from. There was uh, the Thin White Duke Bowie, the Glam Bowie, the Ziggy Stardust Bowie, the Berlin Age Bowie, the Let's Dance Pop Songer Bowie, the uh, 90s uh, Industrial uh, Experimental Dance Bowie. Uh, many Bowies to choose from. And what is uh, what is your uh, favorite Bowie, Chris? Oh, that's a hard question, but I have to go with my first uh, my first Bowie, which was uh, the Bowie of the Hearts Filthy Lesson, the Nathan Adler outside Bowie. He was he was the first, so maybe he's a bit closer to my heart than other. I, I think I must agree there. Uh, I also love the Thin White Duke Bowie, but uh, I think uh, the nineties uh, industrial Bowie is also very close to my heart. What about you, Tom? No, I like both of them. Um, but I I think I as well liked, and I don't even know the name for this Bowie, the one he kind of turned into in the start of the 2000, when he started smiling more, because it seemed <laughs> the, like a the more, happy Bowie. The happy Bowie, <laughs> yeah, probably. Mm. Yeah, the more, more traditional musically Bowie. Musically, yes. Or yeah, yeah. neoclassical True. Bowie sometimes is referred to, mm. yeah. Mm. And um, all these Bowies, uh, they form some kind of a myth. Um, and he was, uh, of course, um, consciously playing with this and uh, making references to it uh, both on his, uh, in his lyrics, lyrics and his uh, album covers, so like the cover for Hours, where the new Bowie is cradling the dying Bowie of the last album, and so on. So... What are these typical Bowie narratives concerned with? One, we'll try to name four. One is continuity and discontinuity, meaning what is constant in his career and what is not. In a career with so many changing styles and identities, has he, for example, certain lyrical subjects that he comes back to across his career? And yes, he does. And well, what doesn't? What what sticks out? What's unique for certain albums? So that's continuity and discontinuity. Another typical concern of the Bowie narrative is, let's call it, influenced or influencer. Who and what inspired him, and in turn, who and what was inspired by him and his art. So this is Bowie seen in the context of his times, and questions like, was he ahead of the pack, or was he jumping on a train, and things like that, that is typical for uh, that type of discussion. And this is a favorite activity of journalists writing about Bowie, trying to pinpoint him somewhere along, along the line of influenced and influencer. And the third one is, we can call it alone or together, because of course he did not do anything in his long career 
by himself. He had an army of different collaborators helping him out, uh, from um, Brian Eno to Mick Ronson to Tony Visconti to Nile Rogers, and the list goes on and on. And because of that, a favorite sport of fans and critics uh, is to try and find out what is Bowie's contribution and what is the contribution from his collaborators. And that is not always that interesting, uh, I would say, because one can enjoy a song perfectly perfectly well without knowing that uh, it's Bowie himself playing guitar or somebody else playing guitar. But uh, nonetheless, that is something that is often discussed. And why is that? Well, it brings us to the last, which is fact or fiction. Because... As I said in the beginning, Bowie is not his real name, it's a persona, and this persona again created different others. So he is always playing some sort of role throughout his career, and he even credited himself as the actor on the album Honky Dory. And using all these different characters and personas, you could call it different voices in his songs, his fans and journalists always have some sort of obsession of trying to find out when he says this such and such is it bowie himself is it the real david joe robert jones is he speaking about himself or is it a, a different persona or a different character different voice um so that connects to the alone and together because we always try to find out what is the real bowie and what is what is real and what is fiction and this is a very difficult sport to participate in because he willfully uh, plays with this, you know, as his myth grows. And when he gets uh, older, he, he uh, I, I would guess he willfully tries to blend uh, the line between uh, fiction and, and real. So that uh, lyric on Black Star, which we will speak about today or the next day, could both be um, interpreted as he's speaking about himself, but it could also be interpreted as uh, a character in a, in a story being told. And uh, you mentioned Black Star there, and, and that is the uh, the album that we have chosen to to start with in his very first episode. And um, yeah, we, when we had a discussion on on on, on uh, which albums to to do by David Bowie, and we, and we want to do more albums, uh, perhaps uh, a sole catalog in the end if we if we ma- make it through them uh, in between a lot of other albums that we want to do as well by other artists. Um, it would maybe be natural to start at the beginning, you know, with his debut album and then work your way chronologically. And, and uh, you came up with the idea of maybe starting in the other end, Chris. Bowie backwards um, as a way of trying to maybe avoid these typical um, subjects for the Bowie narrative where you always interpreted uh, a new album in the light of the last one. And I'm not sure we will manage to do that because we will probably speak about real or fiction and influence and influencer and uh, um, collaborator and loan and all these uh, things because they're hard to escape. But maybe going backwards will um, help ourselves to view this in maybe in a new way. I don't know. We'll try. And speaking of Black Star, that is uh, the last uh, work he um, released in his uh, uh, in his life. 
So especially Black Star is, is an album that is difficult to take away from the narrative because being placed at the last album released two days or so before his death, it will always be viewed as the last statement, the last words of David Bowie. So we'll try to see it as the first words of David Bowie. So yeah, Black Star is uh, David Bowie's 26th album. It was released on his 69th birthday on 8th of January 2016. Um, it was preceded by a few singles in the months before it came out, so it didn't come out as a, you know, with a big bang like uh, the next day did in 2013, which was a major surprise when it came out. At that time, it had been 10 years since the previous albums, even though Bowie had had some activities in between then, up to around 2006. I think more or less people, at least I had, um, more or less assumed that he had uh, retired for good. So it was a you know, big joy when the next day came out. Uh, he had a, s- a single in between there before, uh, uh, before Black Star came out in, in early 2016. Joy, unfortunately, of a new David Bowie album didn't last very long because, uh, sadly, Bowie passed away only two days after, on 10th of January, from uh, liver cancer. Um, so the album has been described by Tony Visconti, the co-producer of the album, as uh, Bowie's parting gift to his fans. And it's uh, very, a very clear theme of mortality on, on the album that is recurring. It was met with critical acclaim and commercial success, topping numeral charts in, in, uh, all over the world, and uh, won both gold and platinum uh, certifications. Black Star being his last album, that's, of course, a context that is hard to escape from. So we'll try to go back two years before and we'll see how this album was made step by step in some sort of timeline. Because in this timeline, we don't know uh, exactly when Bowie became ill. And uh, the only thing we know is that Tony Visconti, the producer of the album, he learned of Bowie's illness uh, in January 2015 as he told in an interview with Mojo magazine, where he said that uh, Bowie uh, told him this, that he was going uh, through cancer treatment uh, just before they started the recording of the album. But the album was, of course, uh, began earlier with demoing and uh, a single and a B-side released uh, the year before in 2014. It could be that uh, he decided to go in, in, the, in the direction he did on the album, which is clearly a more jazzy direction. Uh, he wanted to play with jazz musicians on this album, which is the first time. I mean, Bowie had definitely ventured into jazz before, and, and actually even all the way back on his very first recording back in 1964, Take My Tip has that kind of jazz feeling on it. And there are a few tracks here and there that you can hear during the 70s. He recorded a song with Pat Metheny in the 1980s. And, uh, and there are certainly several songs on Black Tie, White Noise, The Buddha of Suburbia, and, and Outside in the 90s. And even in the early 2000s, he, he had some, some jazzy songs. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, he played, had played with Mike Garson, who's clearly a jazz pianist. Uh, in his band uh, for for many years, and uh, but he had never really played with the full 
jazz ensemble before. And um, it was actually Mike Garson who recommended Mariah uh, or Maria Schneider for Bowie. Mm. And Bowie had talked about wanting to perform with jazz musicians in the early 2000s. And uh, maybe what inspired him to make this album the way he did it was when uh, Bowie and Visconti went to see Mariah Schneider perform when she was uh, at her uh, residency in, in New York City at uh, Birdland. Mm. So they went there in May, May 2014 and uh, yeah, quickly after he, uh, he uh, brought two songs for her to arrange about a month later. And those songs were uh, Sue and uh, another song that was simply called Bluebird, which later evolved to become Lazarus. Yeah, and Lazarus is, of course, a musical that Bowie wrote uh, both the music to, and he wrote uh, the play um, together with Ender Walsh. Um, and it premiered, I can't remember exactly, was it in December 2015? Before the uh, the release of uh, of the album, it was Bowie's last uh, public appearance, um, the the premiere, and Lazarus is a sort of a parallel um, parallel artist uh, or artistic um, project to to Black Star. They share some songs, they share some themes. And they were worked on on the same uh, time period, but Bowie worked on it with different collaborators. So you said in, in May 2014 he met with um, Maria Schneider, and uh, that was about the same time, I think it was earlier that spring, that he met, met with Ender Walsh and started writing uh, the script for, for Lazarus. And um, uh, he made four new songs for Lazarus, which, which is a, I think you call it a jukebox musical, where the musical is made up of uh, previously uh, recorded and written songs together with some new songs. So there's uh, songs from all over Bowie's uh, career put together into a narrative, and there were four new songs, and all those four songs were recorded in the Black Star sessions with Bowie and his uh, band, but not all of them made the album. Some of them were released. Um, well, actually, only one of them made the album. That was the title track, title track Lazarus. The three others they were uh, later released uh, on an, uh, well, on the soundtrack to the the play, and later as a, a EP, EP called uh, No Plan. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, and together with Maria Schneider, they they went into uh, a working session, a workshop in mid June. And uh, the month after, in July, they started uh, or finalized the recording for uh, for the song Sue at mm. Avatar Studios in New York, together with contributions from Schneider's orchestra, which is basically a, a big band, I would say. Yeah, 26, 29 piece orchestra. Big orchestra. Uh, and one of the players there is uh, Donnie McCaslin, which is the, the, the band leader for the Black Star band. Can you tell us a little bit about Donnie McCaslin's quartet? Well, I can I can tell you that uh, they are four uh, people in the band. It's Donnie McCaslin on saxophone, 
Jason Lindner on keyboards, Tim Lefebvre, or Lefebvre. I think it's Lefebvre. Lefebvre on bass, and uh, Mark Kiliana on drums. And But we heard uh, this uh, powerful jazz uh, quartet uh, play live on the 1st of June 2014 at a bar in Manhattan called... Uh, 55 bar I think and they played live and Bowie um, was in the audience uh, on the recommendation of Maria Schneider he didn't contact them no he went home yeah and then he sent them an email or a, a demo even I'm not sure but I know that they first got demos in uh, I think it was December 2015 McCaslin um, said in, a, in an interview um, but I don't know when he w- he contacted them before that. But that would, I, I would assume that would be pretty mind blowing, getting Bowie's uh, demos in the in your email. Yeah, he sent he sent demos to his musicians in December 2014, and uh, the recording of the album started the month after, January 2015. Mm. But they actually started a bit earlier uh, without the band. Um, Visconti has said that in uh, the summer of 2014, at the same time they were recording Sue with Maria Schneider, uh, Bowie came to this um, New York studio called um, uh, The Magic uh, Shop and uh, they brought in uh, Zachary Alford, uh, the drummer, who had played with Bowie many years before, uh, and they started working on some demos that Bowie had uh, Begun and they worked a couple of days and it ended up with five five tracks he said um, and then Bowie went home to work some more on them but one of the demos Bowie had made uh, before that was uh, Pity She's a Whore which was the B-side of the uh, Sue single when that was released and that is his his pure demo is uh, untouched uh, Bowie's home demo released as the B-side. Uh, Tony Visconti was actually very impressed by by the demo, and he said something like, uh, or or especially uh, his his uh, his production skills, saying that his production skills had gone up five thousand percent when he heard the song. Yeah, we'll get back to to these two songs. Um, Sue, and uh, it's a pity she's a whore, she was a whore, uh, when we tackle the album, which will uh, give us some re-recorded versions of these two songs. But Bowie then disappeared, came back and called, uh, I think, out of the blue, uh, Tony Visconti. Um, He said uh, in uh, this Mojo interview that that's how Bowie usually works. There comes a call... And now he's ready to do something. So uh, they got a band and they got the studio and they started working. And the album with the band was released in three sessions. It released was recorded in three sessions. One in January 2015, one in February 2015, and one in March 2015. And that is uh, the whole album and uh, these uh, three 
tracks from the No Plan uh, EP and a couple of unreleased tracks. All the music for those were recorded in those sessions. And after that, Bowie and um, Visconti, they uh, went to another studio where they did the vocal overdubs for all tracks, I think, except one. Um, I can't give uh, everything away. And no plan. I think they were, um, they kept the original vocals there, but all the others were re-recorded uh, at a different studio. And they were also joined in the March sessions by two other musicians, jazz guitarist Ben Monter, who plays guitar on the album, and also James Murphy of uh, LCD Sound System, who here uh, contributed with some, some percussion. Yeah, James Murphy from um, LCD Sound System, he also produced uh, uh, Arcade Fire's uh, album Reflector, where Bowie sang a couple of lines uh, on the title track, which was released in November 2013. And uh, James Murphy also did a remix of Love is Lost uh, from uh, Bowie's last album, The Next Day. I don't know if the Arcade Fire or the remix came first, but uh, they had a little bit of history previous to um, the Black Star Sessions. And um, Nicholas Pegg, uh, in his book, The Complete David Bowie, he says that um, Murphy was there in the February Sessions as a suggestion for a, a producer or a co-producer with, with Visconti and, uh, and Bowie himself. Um, but that was not so. So his contributions to... Um, to the final album, they were only these uh, percussion parts in uh, Girl Loves Me. Maybe other, couple of other details, but... You mentioned something about the style of this album, that it's more jazzy than uh, Bowie's been used to be doing. And they actually set out, Bowie and Visconti, to try to avoid doing the rock and roll album i'm i don't know if i would say they completely succeeded but um there uh, was definitely some more jazzy impulses I, I i agree actually visconti has been quoted saying that they didn't want they wanted to make a jazz album but they didn't want or i'm not sure quite what they want because he said that they didn't want to play with rock musicians that played jazz but they wanted to play with jazz musicians that played rock. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> because that is actually what it sounds like. It does. He even ca called them the spiders from jazz. Oh, that's, that's a nice way of saying it. Siggy Blackstar and the spiders from jazz. And it did take some, some inspirations from some, some other artists. At least they have claimed to have some, some inspirations like... Kendrick Lamar's album from 2015, to pimp to pimp a butterfly, uh, which is of course more a uh, well, it's he's a hip hop artist, but in this album it's more like more a deviation from traditional hip hop. So maybe it's that deviation part that in, in, inspired them here. They also mentioned other influences like uh, the electronic duo Boards of Canada and the experimental hip-hop trio Death Crips, 
And in addition, D'Angelo's fusion album Black Messiah has been mentioned as a as a, as an inspiration. Although I'm not I'm not too familiar with those albums, but uh, I can't really say I hear those influences very clearly on 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 this album, though. Maybe not completely, but uh, it goes to show that Bowie was always into contemporary music and artists. It's certainly an album with uh, a variety of musical styles. It uh, integrates elements of art rock, various types of jazz, quite experimental at times, industrial rock, kind of more folk pop, maybe a little bit hip hop here and there, and uh, and uh, yeah, generally quite experimental rock. But uh, certainly also songs that are relatively conventional, I would say on this album. So let's talk a little bit about the artwork for the album. And uh, you don't actually have the album with you. I do, yeah. Because I was thinking it's the first podcast we're doing and um, I still buy records from time to time. You're one of those? I'm one of those, yes. I am. You're not? I'm record buyer as well but oh, thank God. i'm still in love with the cd format that is crazy yes. but uh <laughs> <laughs> i like vinyl too but vinyl is so expensive yeah. these days it's too expensive i know yeah. but we needed to do um uh, an exception yeah. for this album since it's the first one we're actually going to do an unwrapping um in good asmr style gonna put this close to the microphone no unwrappings are the best uh, on radio I sound of wrapping plastic from an LP record. It actually sounds like the opening of a David Bowie song. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful cover. It really is. Um, ah. So the record is wrapped in uh, just a transparent uh, sleeve. That is very interesting. And a die cut uh, black. And I was expecting it to be two records and there is the um, some I don't know if it's the Milky Way or what it is but um, something from the universe and sign and a photo which is from uh, the Black Star music video and of course a black inside <laughs> it's <laughs> very <this>? black <laughs> it's really black <laughs> this is the lyrics yeah that, okay. Looks like the CD Brocklet, but uh, blown up for size. Yeah. With uh, the lyrics in almost unintelligible uh, fonts that you can only view in a certain angle when the light catches the, the black, on blight, black on black writing. Absolutely. Yeah, black on black writing doesn't really work that well, but... It, it, Kind of does here anyway. In a way, you can read it in a, in a certain certain light. You yeah. can. It's it's stylish and artful, um, very Bowie. Uh, it looks great, that's for sure. So yeah, the artwork uh, was was designed by Jonathan Barnbrook, who had previously worked with Bowie on uh, on uh, actually the four last albums, Heaven, Reality, and The Next Day. It uh, features a star images uh, star image. 
which is credited to NASA. Um, and it has five segments below the main star, which is meant to form uh, the word Bowie in stylized letters. Um, if you look at it, uh, I can't really say that that says Bowie, but um, when, when you know about it, you, yeah, okay, you can kind of... <laughs> I see what you mean, yeah. Yeah, except yeah. except for those stylish letters, I don't think his name is anywhere. Um, on the CD, you can find it in the spine with the black on black letters, but I don't think it's on the vinyl. I was a bit puzzled by the fact that it it, it is credited to NASA. I mean, why should that very ordinary star be credited to NASA? But it was revealed after some actually four months after the album's released. On the vinyl album, there is a, a, a hidden star field image when you hold it up against a light source. And um, and uh, it, it's probably this, I mean, it, that is a real star field image. So it's probably that image that comes or that is credited to NASA, I would, would think. Mm. And uh, Barnbrook has also hinted that it could be additional hidden elements within the album artwork. But uh, I don't think I've heard about any or people have found any other ones. Well, there are um, various other star shapes, uh, not only the um, five-pointed star on the front cover. There's some other stars, one that looks like a sun, one that looks more like a, a comic, comic book explosion, uh, and one which is... Um, uh, the one they use for the no plan uh, cover, but inverted so that the star is white and the, the background is, um, it's not all black, it looks like more of a starry, starry sky. But uh, yeah, the Black Star album cover is actually quite unique. And do you know why? Why it's unique? And could it be because there's no image of Bowie? That's correct. It's the only album in his discography, uh, at least uh, studio album, that doesn't have his his, uh, his image mm. on it. Yeah, in some form or another. Mm. Mm. But you mentioned that it's credited to NASA. Uh, the first thing that um, I was thinking when I saw the album was the Black Star um I think they call Black Star amplifiers. And then I read that uh, David Bowie actually had a... Um, he, he was involved in the production of an amplifier, some anniversary that Black Star had. Because they actually have the same logo. A Black Star. A Black Star, yeah. Another reason for bringing the vinyl into this first podcast is that uh, this album was, even though it's uh, released in the age of streaming and CDs, uh, it was intended as a vinyl. There were talk of this being a vinyl only release, but fortunately they uh, ended up releasing it in, in various formats. Um, but I think that is something that um, affects the, the quality of the album because vinyl has a, a fixed length so if you compare to the next day or many other albums uh, that are crammed <laughs> in want of a better word 
in the CDH um, where you put too many songs on them um, just because you can. Uh, on this album, it's uh, uh, it would have been no problem for Bowie to include the three songs from the No Plan EP that were released at the same time on this album. There were plenty of room, uh, but he decided not to because he would have to fit a single uh, LP. And I think that made it more uh, compact and uh, maybe more, I don't know, uh, it's not that the No Plan songs are very different, but uh, it would have made the album with more colors, not as looking for the word, but I, I think the, the, the album as it is today, the songs connect to each other stylistically and, and flow very well. And if you mm. would have put in these uh, three short songs from um, the Lazarus show, it would have hurt the, the total sum of it. But of course, we, we, if that is what we would have been given in January 2016, we probably would have said, oh, what a wonderful album. And No Plan is one of the highlights of the, the album and so on. But uh, <laughs> uh, as it was, now we got an album that was more like the old Bowie albums from the, the uh, LP uh, days when uh, he released short albums, as did most 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 artists. And I think we could discuss this at length, and I think that is also it touches on on why many of the older albums are held up as classics, mm. and maybe the newer aren't because when the CD entered, you got longer and longer albums usually because they would just fill in the void, so to speak, and probably. A lot of those albums, especially from the early days of the CDH, were much too long. Mm -hmm. They were giving you value for money, but they were giving you more of an unedited uh, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and in a way, the next day suffers a bit from that, I would say. It's a great album, has some really great songs, but also some songs that pulls the album down maybe a little bit. Yeah, I think that one and a couple of others that we might uh, yeah, get into later. Mm. Mm. And then I could just say a couple of words about unreleased songs as we discussed these uh, songs that were chosen and the other two, the, the three that were released that were cut off. But there are more songs recorded. Um, at least one of them is known by a title. It's called Blaze. And it was also known as uh, Someday, I think, uh, during uh, the sessions. Nicholas Pegg in uh, his uh, The Complete David Bowie, he has a pretty detailed description of that with uh, many uh, quotes from the lyrics because he has heard it and it's, uh, it's a rocking song about uh, with the science fiction theme. So I would recommend anyone to buy his book and read the, that description. Uh, Leah Cardos, who uh, also has a wonderful book on... Uh, Black Star in the next day, called Black Star Theory. She also heard uh, Blaze. Um, I heard her on a podcast. She was saying she was so enthusiastic when she heard it that she almost couldn't remember much about it afterwards. But uh, it was a, a great classic song, uh, Bowie song. And, and why it's not released, uh, who knows? But one time in the future, we might hear that and possibly other songs that we don't know much about yet. There are some titles uh, floating around but 
they might be working titles for tracks that were finally released on these uh, two uh, releases. Um, and also Visconti has said that there are four or five uh, demos that Bowie made after the recording of Blackstar was finished in the summer of 2015, obviously made before his death sometime in the autumn, um, that nobody, possibly only his closest family has heard and possibly will never be released or will be. We can only hope. We can only <laughs> we can only hope. But then again, this is what Bowie intended for us to listen to. The way it is. This is uh his last word uh, released, but did he know that it was his last word when he uh, he released it? Probably not when he initiated the album. No, because when they mixed it in the summer of 2015, he was uh, better, I think Visconti said. And then he was getting more ill again in the, the autumn. So I, I think he got the final or, or the message that there was nothing more they could do in, in, in November. Yeah, it, it was close to the um, Lazarus video. Yeah. Um, there was something there, yeah. Uh, so he, he was saying to Visconti sometime that he was ready to record some more. <laughs> for for this album? No, after this album after was released. This album. Okay. Maybe it was these um, demos that he made that he wanted mm. to. So maybe he had some uh, other last words. Yeah, that we will never know. That we will never mm. know. Yeah, so after the uh, album was recorded, it was obviously released. Uh, and there were two singles that preceded the album. Black Star, uh, the title track, was released first, uh, 19th November 2015. And uh, Lazarus was released 17th of December 2015. Uh, the video for Lazarus was released on the 7th of January, I think it was. Three days before he died, the day before the album came out. Um, obviously the album was uh, basically got a universal acclaim from, from music critics and, and fans uh, I, I think it would have gotten universal, re universal uh, acclaim regardless of his death but the, the fact that he died of course most likely helped the sales and the attention that the album got and it, it debuted at number one for example on the UK albums charts and, uh, went to number one uh, on album charts around the world, including Australia, France, Germany, Italy, New Zealand, and the US Billboard 200. And, and uh, along with the album, 19 of his other albums, can you imagine, 19, 19. of his albums, <laughs> of his 26 albums, went into the UK Top 100 albums charts. Mm -hmm. And uh, 13 singles were in the UK Top 100 singles charts, obviously due to streaming and... and uh, Things like that. Mm. His numbers on Spotify in, I'm not sure if it was the same week he died or but at least in the period after he died, increased by 2,800%. Mm. That's a massive surge in, in, in popularity there. Everyone was playing their old favorites again and again and mourning. Can you remember, Tron, the first time you heard uh, there was a new album of Bowie music on the way in 2015? I can remember listening to, to Black Star. Um, 
thinking that I was listening to the album when it was actually just being released as a single. Um, because I, I picked up, as you do, because it sounds like uh, different songs. Yeah, you think about the Black Star track itself. The Black Star track, yeah, which was the first or second single? That the was first, the, first, the first, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, fascinating story about that, I think, because it was uh, it was actually meant to be 11 minutes long, and then they had to cut it down because of uh, Spotify or... No, iTunes rules. iTunes, iTunes have the rules uh, that you can't have a single that is longer than 10 minutes. So so the track Black Star is, is 9 minutes and 57 seconds. Yeah, which which is very fascinating, because before in the old days, a single could be maximum... <laughs> Three minutes and thirty seconds. Oh. Or <laughs> so here is something that's nine minutes. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. It's definitely Bowie's longest single. Um, second longest track. I th- yeah, I was gonna say it's the second longest. The longest is Station to Station, yeah. which was never released as a single. No, Station. No, not the title track. Station to Station was never okay. released. Okay. Before Black Star, the track were released as a single we got a little appetizer from it in the form of the theme song of a television series called the last panthers that were released earlier that autumn and the director of that uh, television series is a swedish man called johan renk he is known today for the chernobyl television series and and several others but uh, in norway in sweden we remember him as stakabo who uh, in no way we would call him a one-hit wonder with a song called Here We Go Again. Here We Go Again. He possibly had more hits in Sweden, but in no way that was the one. Yeah, we recommend checking it out because your life will never be the same after you hear the song. Very catchy. It's a before and after. And he made this television series and he wanted to use music from David Bowie and he got the first prize in that lottery because he got a completely new Bowie song. It was Black Star, but uh, the um, theme, it's one minute long, I think. It's a very different mix. You can hear the vocal, but the, the beats, it's a little bit different. and um, Also some extra parts that was recorded. Yeah. It's actually reworked by, by Tony Visconti. So it could be, I'm not sure how much Bowie was involved in it, actually. No, only Visconti knows. But after this, uh, Bowie was uh, impressed with... Uh, Renk's direction, uh, I would assume, since he then hired uh, Johan Renk uh, to make the two videos from the Black Star album. So he is the director of the Black Star music video and the director of the Lazarus music video. He must have been impressed since the very start, since he gave the song away, because he, he didn't usually do that, the series. No, Where I, am I wrong? I don't know the background. Well, uh, he, I, he probably licensed his or his uh, his legacy were licensed out to many films and televisions, but uh, as a theme song, that's not as common. No. Only thing, uh, well, you had that um, BBC series. I think it was BBC back in the early two thousand called Life on Mars, named after a Bowie song. Yes, uh-huh. with the second season called Ashes to Ashes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's a long. Uh, history of Bowie and television, um, Buddha of Suburba being the, maybe the most prolific television soundtrack he recorded as it resulted in an 
soundtrack album by itself, which is actually not a soundtrack, but we'll get to that in the future. But uh, yeah, this uh, maybe this was the first uh, theme song. So the very first track on the album is actually the title track itself, Black Star. Um, it was released as a single a couple of months before the album, but that wasn't the first time we heard a snippet of the song because it was actually also used as a, as a theme song for a miniseries, uh, The Last Panthers, which also came out uh, that autumn. Uh, the single itself was released 19 of November 2015. It was a full-length uh, track on the single. It was not, no single edits. Well, it was kind of a single edit, actually, because uh, the original track was a uh, little bit over 11 minutes long, which would have been the longest boy track that he recorded. But uh, since iTunes have a limit of 10 minutes, maximum 10 minutes for their singles. They edited it down and it became 9 minutes and 57 seconds. So they used the same album track on, on the single. And the single was quite popular. It was a top 10 hit in Japan and Portugal. It reached uh, number 40 or top 40 in Belgium, Hungary, Italy and Switzerland. It reached uh, or peaked at number 61 on the UK single charts and uh, number 78 in the US on the Billboard Hot 100. And later it actually also won David Bowie uh, a Grammy Award for Best Rock Song and for Best Rock Performance at the 59th Grammy Awards. And uh, the song was accompanied by a brilliant and very interesting music video, also 10 minutes long, a 10 minute short film, directed by the Swedish director Johan Renk, who also directed The Last Panthers uh, miniseries. And also the Lazarus uh, video that came later. So Black Star is, is a complex song. It is structured in, in three different sections. You can say it consists of two different songs. Uh, the first one, which we might call the Villa of Ormond section, uh, starting the whole, whole track, and then we have a, a I'm a Black Star part in the middle before it returns to the first part at the end of the track. The track was recorded during the last session Bowie had with his band uh, on the 20th of March of 2015. Most of the track was actually recorded in one track, one or two track. And uh, the guitarist of the so uh, on the song, Ben Monder, has stated that it was... Uh, or that much of the energy of the song comes from the fact that it was the first take is the kind of urgency that the song has. And that means the whole song, like all the three different parts? It was uh, pieced together. It, it is at least two different takes that was was, uh, okay. was edited together later. And there was uh, also additional guitar work and strings and flute parts that was overdubbed later. Uh, McCaslin plays a flute solo in the song and Bowie recorded his vocals uh, one or two months after the, the backing tracks were recorded in April and May at uh, Human Studios. Although it was the last song that was uh, recorded for the album, it was the first song that was mixed. Uh, it was mixed by Tom Elmhurst at Electric Lady Studios and it took him 
several days because it's such a long song. As with all the other songs on Black Star, except Dollar Days, um, Black Star was presented to the band in the form of a home demo made by Bowie that was quite similar to the end, but with a lot of embellishment from the band, like uh, he had a part in the middle that was just, here we make a shift from the first part into the second part, and they should just slowly disintegrate this dark opening into the more light second part. So that was, well, I don't know if you could call it an improvisation, but uh, uh, that was made up in the studio to make that uh, flow from part one into part two. And I think the ending, of course, uh, sounds like it's improvised and probably is. It probably is. And it is a brilliant transition they do. The first transition is, is, is uh, maybe a bit unstructured in a way. It sort of just collapses into different sounds and, 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 and uh, each musician's kind of play, plays their own thing. But I think particularly that transition between the second part back into the third part Mm. Is, is really really well done it's almost like you don't even notice that you are back in the first part again it's all of just suddenly appears it's, it's really really well done that, that last transition there I think and the end where it just breaks down beeps and blips yeah exactly it would be interesting to hear the demos as well of those songs we have of course one demo that we, we've heard from, from the, the album which was uh, a B-side to one of the singles, uh, it's a bit she was a whore. But on Blackstar, there is actually another version of Blackstar as well. It's a, it's, it's a shortened remix that was used in, uh, in the soundtrack for the film Moonish Daydream by Brett Morgan in 2022, which mainly spotlights Bowie's vocals and Jason Lindner's keyboards. So in a way, that's a third version of that song. Mm. There also exists a couple of cover versions, um, including one by uh, Jerry Bischoff and Amanda Palmer, together with Anna Calvi. Uh, that's probably the most prominent one of those. Yeah, there's also a cover version which is um, only strings, which makes sense, because you can kind of hear that it's a very classical composition. It works as that, as well as a rock song. What about the music itself? What do you think about it? Well, the first time I heard it, it was in this uh, short snippet, uh, the opening theme for The Last Panthers. And I immediately loved it because it was dark and slow and spooky electronic uh, Bowie, which is always to my liking. So I had high hopes to the uh, album uh, in the future. And when I first heard the single, it was just amazing. It delivered on the promise, I have to say, and it uh, it's his second longest song. It's, so it 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 was an epic with these uh, three parts, and when the opening part changed to the second part, when you heard the first time, it was you know you did not know what to expect, but you you knew it was a ten minute long song, and uh, wow, that that was that was a moment. I mean, the, the track itself, maybe maybe apart from the, the, the middle part, which is, yeah, I could say, slightly more conventional Bowie, the main part of Black Star, is, is, it is a pretty unique track for Bowie. It's pretty unique musically, almost like a slow ballad, but it has a very busy rhythm over it. Hmm. 
and and uh, the vocals, especially in the first verse, it's very chanting. It's almost like a Gregorian chant type vocals that that he's singing over there. There's a lot of uh, reverb, and and sometimes the reverb is centered on certain words, making them more underlined, sort of. And um, it's also uh, like a, a choir of bowies, several voices put on top of each other, harmonies. I don't know, it's not a harmony, but it's a... Well, he's harmonizing with himself um, because there's no other, there's no one else singing the vocals in here, right? Except Bowie himself. No, no, it's only Bowie. On this track, it's only Bowie at yeah. least. Uh, there is, um, I think what maybe Chris is thinking about there, there's a very high-pitched vocal tone there that I was curious when I was listening on it if, if he's actually singing it or if it is an effect. And I, I'm thinking it must be an effect. I don't think Bowie reached that high at this at this age. Well, I mean, today, today, ninety nine percent of the songs are made with autotune, but I, I can't really think that that's the case in, with Bowie's music. But who knows? No, he sounds double tracked or triple tracked or something, but probably yeah. with some treatments that um, give this uh, ghostly uh, Gregorian sound. And I'm I'm very with you, Chris, on this. It's um, from the get-go. This is just a very thrilling song to listen to, and you get sucked into this kind of deep black hole of music that is very ethereal, and you have this um, build-up with the looping guitars and a droning mm. synth that comes in there, and the first time I heard it, I um, because I listened to this the first time actually when it was released as the album. And really? Yes, I, I for some reason because I kind of I don't know I think I I think I just wanted to wait until I could hear the, all the songs in its eternity. Makes sense. Mm. Um, and then I was completely sure that when you get into the second part, the one you refer to as. I'm a black star, mm-hmm. um, that it was a different song. And as you say, that when it goes back to the omen part, it is so seamless mm. that it's uh, it's quite incredible because you, you feel you're in a different song and then it just comes back and it just slides into it. Um, but then I was a bit like, is this the kind of thing he did with... Uh, it's no game when you had like this reprise kind of song that he, because mm. there's two, but there's two quite different versions again. He even did that much earlier on Back on Diamond Dogs with Sweet Thing, <laughs> Candidate, Sweet okay. Thing. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Which is, at least on, on that album, tracked as, as uh, well, sometimes they are on the same track, but they're, they're, they at least have, have different titles. But but it is, it is very similar in a way. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. And, and that transition, yeah, that is amazing. And to to, believe, to, you know, to imagine that they did that in one or two takes as well, it's it's impressive. I can't imagine that they could have mixed that probably in some way, but but still, um, it sounds to me like they're 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 just playing that transition. Yeah, it does for me as well. Yeah. I, I I also have a hard time seeing it can be done any other way than that. And on the topic of uh, previous Bowie songs, that. We are reminded of uh, 
station to station is of course the one that pops into mind because it's the longest and uh, another one that's obviously constructed out of two very different parts three different parts if you have the the intro without the vocals and um, there's also similarities to other artists of course and that might be as always depending on the the ear who listens what type of associations one gets but my first association at least from the last panthers was massive attack uh, around 100th window slow tracks with ominous synths and uh, electronic beats and treated whispered like vocals with a lot of reverb especially the opening um, part of black star reminded me of that and of course bowie did a track with um, mass attack around that time uh, nature boy on the soundtrack of uh, moulin rouge uh, who is which is a track i would say you know could go together with the uh, black star mm. mm. yeah i also um i find that this has a bit uh, similarities also with a couple of Radiohead songs. Mm. Uh, that has a lot to do with the type of experimentation that Bowie does. It's also something that Radiohead does. And um, especially the song Dollars and Cents, this reminds me of. And there is also this song by Julia Halter called Night Song that has the same kind of, uh, almost this tar- type of dark mm. vibe to it. Yeah, and Dollars and Sense has this Miles Davis jazz type feel. Um, so we are we're in the rock jazz fusion landscape uh, here. Definitely, yes. Yeah, comparison makes sense. Uh, it is definitely a mysterious to me, quite creepy song, which which I really like. And and of course, the music video also really emphasizes the creepy side of of. Uh, of the track you want to tell us a little bit about the video yeah the video is together with um, Lazarus featuring one character uh, which is a person with bandages and buttons for eyes like in the book Coraline by uh, Neil Gaiman and um, this character is called the somnambulist uh, in Bowie's notes which is the sleepwalker but more specifically, the sleep sleepwalker in um, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So it, it makes sense that the city we see in the movie, no, the movie, no, in the, in the video for Black Star, it looks like silent a silent movie set. Uh, it could be the set of Dr. Caligari, and that is, of course, something he has been coming back to all through his career. There's a lot of stage sets or video backgrounds that looks like silent movie, and of course his background in pam- pantomime uh, could also be a part there but um that's one of the character and the other character is this looks like a, a priest waving some sort of bible looking book with a star on it cross between uh, a preacher and a, a red army uh, official in china or something and he never sings um but um, the one who does a lot of singing is the third, uh, which is this, I don't know what you could call it. It looks like an old uh, show showbiz man, some sort of trickster with a 
devilish grin who sings the happy but slightly scary middle part, the I'm Black Star part. And uh, the, the Bowie in the video, he, he uh, cuts between these three images. And um, in the Lazarus video, we also get the somnambulist with the buttons, but you also get grinning Bowie. Could be the same person who sings this middle part. Yeah, I'm thinking the same. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's the the video. Of course, they they're made by the same director, and they're made from Bowie's uh, notes. He told, and uh, they share some imagery, specifically this button uh, character, um, which also is in in a photograph in uh, in the booklet for the album. The video also has. A lot of uh, disquieting imagery. There's uh, people, uh, scarecrows, crucified. Three scarecrows. Three, yeah. Kind of shaking in a, in a strange way. And, and uh, do you know what inspiration for that was? Tell us. Quite quite funny, actually. It, it, uh, Bowie particularly wanted them, wanted it like that. He instructed uh, Rank to put that in there. And... His inspiration was classic Popeye cartoons, old Popeye cartoons. You see the background mm. figures there, they're shaking. Because they're reusing the same animated cells again and again, yeah. Boy, boy wanted that effect <laughs> in, in, in this video. I find that a bit cool, yeah. Did yeah. he ever say why? I don't know. It's a cool idea, and it, and it looks creepy. E- even in those old old cartoons, I find it a bit creepy, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, shaking in the beginning, and uh, in the end, there are women standing in circles, uh, shaking. But in the in the beginning, it's uh, I think three persons or so in the background of Bowie inside this uh, this house, and uh, and the third part is also in this. Looks like a loft uh, with a triangle a roof. Something he also had in the Look Back in Anger video. But the shaking, you're telling Bowie's um, inspiration. But My first association when I saw it was um, The Rite of Spring. Um, Igor Stravinsky, the, the ballet, ballet, which tells the story of a, a Russian uh, village um, and there's a, it's not a plague, but it's a, some years of bad, bad harvests, and they do a sacrifice, and it ends with the, the chosen one, the, the young uh, female of the village who dances herself to death uh, inside a circle where they all stand shaking, just like they do in the in the end of this uh, video. So that was my first association. Our here is uh, making a nod to the rite of spring. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of other elements in the video that not connected with the Rite of Spring, but but rites in some sort of way. You know, there's the, this uh, enormous candle. Well, it, it, it's a candle with that has been burning for a long time, so there's a lot of... Uh, in, in the bottom. And, of course, there's parts of the lyrics that put this in the slightly occult. And Absolutely, and, and, and uh, there are a couple of other uh, odd... Characters as well, well in the video. There's a woman with a tail, for example. Mm. Um, Bowie didn't offer any explanation for it, except that he said it was kind of sexual. And there's also this uh, dead spaceman. 
Of course, we cannot forget the dead spaceman in the beginning, the astronaut. And, and uh, for anyone who has been following Boy for a long time, brings us to, to Major Tom. I think it's, it's pretty clear that that astronaut is Major Tom. I think, at least for, for most Boy fans, it is. <laughs> Maybe it isn't, but, but uh, for, mo- for me, it is at least. Yeah, we, we can never know what he meant, but he must have known that putting a skeleton of a spaceman inside a spacesuit in this last video with a, a jewel-encrusted uh, skull that becomes part of a ritual in the end with the shaking, that people would say that now this is a, some sort of sacrifice of Major Tom in the end. And a little fun fact, um, Bowie's son, Duncan Jones, is a movie director and he made a, a movie called Moon. And um, there's a button on the spaceman's suit, which is from that movie. Oh, cool. That is an amazing detail. <laughs> <laughs> And that would actually be the fourth time that uh, Major Tom is mentioned in a Bowie context. Mm. Or, or not mentioned, but... but uh, Implied. Implied, yeah. Mm. He's also in the, the musical of Lazarus. Yeah. And uh, the video ends with this silly-looking monster popping out into the field with the scarecrows. And that makes the video, you know, the, the video has some strong images, some disquieting images, but it also has some, you know, pretty silly images, like this uh, 80s children's television looking <laughs> monster coming in the end. So uh, and all this is, this is true to Bowie. Uh, there's always uh, some eye winking in there somewhere. Uh, don't take it too serious. And I think um, I read somewhere John Rank saying that even in this uh, the very dark Lazarus video, I'm jumping to a different song, but even there Bowie sort of tried to put in little jokes and little comedy because that is the British thing, uh, the guilt of being serious. You cannot be too serious. So he made it a little silly on purpose, which also made it not as hard to watch, but but more uh, humane. Mm. He said something, but that was from memory, so it's not <laughs> exactly that he said. But yeah. I can mention last on the video, it, it in the end won um, an MTV Video Music Awards for uh, Best Art Direction in 2016. Mm. Well deserved. Well deserved. Absolutely. Let me say just one more thing. This village that you see, the cabinets of Dr. Caligari, that's only one association another one is um cannot remember the, the name from the labyrinth uh, the goblin city it reminds me also of the goblin city don't know if it's on purpose <laughs> wouldn't be Never surprised know. if it does so from uh, goblin city and over to uh, have a look at the lyrics for the song which is of, of course also very mysterious and obscure um but we can we can start from the very beginning with the, with the title of the song and the title of the whole album, Black Star, and and uh, there is a, some interesting connections there between what a black star is and 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 what maybe Bowie was in, intending. Of course, we don't know what Bowie was intending by calling it a black star. But one point that I find particularly interesting is that in astronomy, 
A black star is a transitional phase between a collapsing star and a singularity. Uh, and a singularity is a point where, where uh, normal rules of space and time no longer exist. Um, so it kind of implies here if Bowie is the black star, which he of course mentions many times. I am a black star. In the song, he's not, uh, not a film star or a pop star or a Marvel star. He's a black star, his own unique entity. And if, if you take that astronomy interpretation of it, with him being the black star, being in the transitional phase between a collapsing star and singularity, which of course in this context would be death. I like that uh, possible uh, interpretation. Whether or not Bowie knew about that or thought about that is another question, of course. But it fits very well, with, at least, with knowing where he was at the time. Uh, although he didn't have, when he re recorded the song and wrote the lyrics and, and made up the title, of course, he didn't know at the time that his cancer was terminal. That was a message he got first in November that year. But still, the whole album is filled with thematic on, on, on uh, mortality and, uh, and that aspect of it. So it, it certainly was on his, his mind. With him having cancer, he probably you know, had that in his thought. Sometimes you think of all these late Bowie albums, Heathen and Reality and Next Day and Black Star, that they all... They could all be sort of farewell albums. They're made with with a, a last song that could be, this could be the last words. So we can never know what he thought, but um, he sure surely made sure that this is an album that could be interpreted as his last words if that was how it was to play out, and it, it was. There are a couple of interesting... Um coincidences around uh, the song Black Star or, or, or the title Black Star because it's not the first it's not the first song that was called Black Star um, Elvis Presley released a song back in the day it's called Flaming Star which is uh, I think one of his best songs from his film years and um, Originally, that was called Black Star, and and it, it's still mentioned in the in, in the lyrics actually, which goes, "When a man sees his Black Star, he knows his time has come," which of course also has a mortality aspect to it. But um, it's probably stretching it a bit far that Bowie had that song in in in, in mind. But it is a, it is a interesting uh, coincidence at least. And another coincidence between uh, Bowie and Elvis. Do you know what that is? No. Tell they, us. They share a birthday? They share the birthday. Ah. Yeah, the same birthday, 8th of January. And uh, which was, of course, also the release date of mm -hmm. the album. And uh, you, Chris, you also know what 8th of January 2016 is in another cultural context. That's the inception date of uh, the replicant um, Roy Batty in uh, Blade Runner. Played by... The brilliant Rutger Hauer, and and there's actually a connection between that also and Bowie, because when when uh, Bowie's brother uh, Terry Burns died, Bowie actually uh, quoted that famous last speech that uh, Rutger Hauer uh, improvised in Blade Runner. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. And there's one one more connection there because uh, the David Bowie is. 
exhibition when that uh, toured because it was in in the, the Victoria and Albert Museum in um, in London first, and then it, it it toured the world. And when it was in the in Brooklyn, they also had an, a, a little edition with Bowie's notes for the videos and the songs for Black Star. And there were some unused lyrics for Black Star. Uh, I'm a various types of stars that was not used um, and one of them was I'm a blade star right mm-hmm. but the connection to to Elvis um, his album was released on his birthday but it was not intended so that was because the video production took longer than planned so it was supposed to come out in the autumn November December but it was pushed for, uh, forward yeah there's actually another odd cultural connection here between Black Star and and uh, TV series that Bowie was a big fan of, Peaky Blinders, and he actually sent the Black Star album to the show's creator, uh, Stephen Knight, and uh, requested that his music would be used in the third season of the of the show. I don't think it was. I think the song Lazarus. It was. Was used. Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, the star of the show, Killian Murphy and uh, Bowie, they exchanged gifts and became friends. And, and Murphy's character in the show references a black star in one of the in one of the episodes. Yeah, it's a sort of operation. It's a code name for a day when they take out their opponents, drawing a black star in his note and calling it the Black Star Day. Yeah, brilliant series. Yeah, so the lyrics, a uh, lot of um, odd imagery, and, and very early on, uh, first uh, line he mentions uh, the villa of Ormen. Originally, it was the villa of all men. Yeah, that can be seen in these uh, notes that were in the David Bowie his exhibition. And if it, if it was the villa of all men, it would be a logical continuation when he's only women. Neil, which comes later. So you got the, the mm. villa. Only women kneel in the villa of all men. But uh, he changed it to Orman. Yeah. Whatever that means. For us Norwegians, that has a very specific meaning. Uh, basically being a snake, or the snake, or the serpent. It, it is in both uh, Scandinavian languages and, and, and Norse languages as well and uh, of course the image of serpent especially in in norse mythology or several mythologies for that matter where he bites himself in the in the tail uh, representing the cyclical nature of of uh, life and death and and rebirth and it's uh, you know coming at the stage of uh, at this stage of in Bo's career and life it's also interesting to think about uh, Black Star or that omen in this uh, sense, sort of uh, uh, reflecting on the idea that uh, while life ends, some essence of or, or legacy continues, be it in memory or, or in this context, in, in, in the form of art and music. Mm-hmm. The words also resembles a line from Alice Crowley's 1913 magic ritual, the Star Sapphire, which he states... Let him then return to the center, and so to the center of all. And that is uh, something Bowie uh, mentions a couple of times here in the in the text. 
the solitary candle and uh, in the center of it all, in the center of it all, your eyes. And that's not the first time he mentioned or referenced Crowley in his work. We have to mention Station to Station again, of course, but also Quicksand and others. It's in fact also not the first time he mentions in the center of it all, because in the song Slow Burn from Heathen, he sings, and here we are at the center of it all, Slow Burn. Have you given any thoughts to the lyrics, Tom? Apart from what has already been mentioned, it's um, it's hard to not look into the song as kind of a requiem from Bowie. And it's almost like you wish to go back to the two days or like the days before when he was still alive and you can listen to this again because at least you just had the implication, you know, that, um, okay, because Bowie had been through such a huge career and it covers so much more ground that uh, what, you know, almost 100 single artists would do during their own lifetime. Um, and to have this as almost like a final statement is uh, quite remarkable. But it also goes with the myth of Bowie, which just continues with uh, with this work. Yeah, I think if he had made interviews in his last years, it would have taken away some of the mystery because now he has two albums with a lot of lyrics that... In one way, you can interpret them to be about himself or his his legacy, his career, his uh, illness. But it can also be very specific about other subjects, as we know, books he read and, and so on. So you can, you can interpret them either way. And I, I think this vagueness is likely intended um, and without providing us for a correct answer he gave us the, the possibility of having these speculations. If he said that this is a song about so-and-so, then we wouldn't have all these various theories uh, to, to make the song last, because we continue to come back to the mystery. If the mystery is solved, then it's not as, not as fun. And McCaslin said something in, in one of the interviews that Bowie had told him that this song is about the rise of ISIS. Uh, and that sounds... Weirdly specific to be Bowie. He very rarely did that. But of course, anything is possible. And uh, it could be... Well, official spokesperson for Bowie has since denied that there is any relation between the song and, uh, and, and the Middle East situation. Yeah. So, and listening to... I mean, it does have that sort of Middle Eastern tone in here and there maybe, but uh, apart from that, it, it's hard to see the connection it would be the the day of execution and the kneeling and i don't know it gives some imagery uh, of fundamental religious groups of course but um it could be things he just threw out in the studio to give them associations to work with while they played like he did on the outside giving them notes and directions uh, McCaslin said something that Bowie uh, never said play this and this and that in a standard musical way but he also always spoke in sort of metaphors and, and uh, imagine this is a song about ISIS 
yes. play like that. Uh, th- that sounds more like Bowie. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. play that's like point. yeah. Mm. But we can never know, can never and know. that's the beauty of it. Certainly, a song that resonates. That's for sure. So then we have come to the second track on the album, uh, "Tis a Pity She Was a Whore." That song was originally released the year before as the B-side of the single "Sue" or "In the Season of Crime," and it was recorded back in 2014 as Bowie's home demo, basically. And that's the song that, or that's the version that was released as the B-side. Bowie recorded or played all the instruments himself: uh, vocals, guitars tenor saxophone, piano, synthesizer, and a drum machine. Tony Visconti was particularly impressed by Bowie's production skill. He said something like that they had gone up 5,000%. Were you uh, as impressed when you first heard the song, Krista? It's a wonderful opening and a wonderful ending. I'm not sure about the parts in the middle. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very odd song, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it is um, basically a pop song. Under there, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere <laughs> under there, there is a pop song. You have the have the synths that plays quite conven- conventional chords, but everything else is 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 not. You have the have the saxophone that's honking there with sort of not. It's in tune, but it's not in in on, on time. Mm. And it's beating and the, up. And there's and a piano that does the same. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's beating up and it's slowing down and it's in intervals, so it's it's really. I mean, it it drives me out of my mind. And, and I wonder. I think the song might not have a bass. At least, it's very difficult to hear it. There, there's like a bass tone in the rhythm, but I'm not sure if it's actually a bass instrument or if it's just a sort of bit thunderous bass drum or, or, or what it is. But, but it, to me, or at least, it, there isn't any bass lines at least in there. No, that is, that is true. It might just be uh, the drums in there. It's an interesting song. But I have to say, I did not enjoy it that much the first time I heard it, uh, except from the opening, uh, which I thought was very cool. And uh, the album version was much better. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, I was uh, first time I heard it, I was a bit bit disappointed. It is a song that has grown on me, but but uh, I think I would prefer uh, prefer the album version as well. I really really like the album version, but I very rarely listen to the original demo. This feels a bit to me like listening to speed metal where my pulse is just racing and racing and I can't do anything to stop it. (laughs) Speed metal? Yes. (laughs) That's not the sense I got, but uh, that's fine. (laughs) The song has been described as a propulsive, roaring, heavily electronic wall of sound and a Rocher's mesh of melody and, and discord. I think that is is pretty accurate description. Uh, Bo's official statement about the song was that he compared it to what rock music might have sounded like if it had been written by vorticists. And I must admit, when I first heard that, I had no clue what vorticism or vorticist was. It's a British avant-garde movement in the beginning of the last century. I think it started around uh, the First World War. They were 
influenced by other avant-garde movements from the continent, like Cubism and I would say Futurism as well, because it was the sound, the noise. I think the magazine, um, the British uh, Vortices magazine was called Blast, but, but short-lived. So it's a bit like the song would have been a bit like cut up and then just collage back together in kind of almost random way. Yeah, you you could hear the early 19th century, 20th century avant-garde uh, <laughs> ethos in this song. Uh, yeah. And of course, the context of the First World War, he mentions the war in the lyrics. So there's some, certainly some brutality uh, in the, the music, but the, the vocal with the... It's a sweet little melody with this sweet, almost 40s-like choir in the background of... Uh, Bowie, infinite Bowie's choiring for himself uh, on top of all this rumbling noise. Sweet isn't the word that <laughs> first brings to my mind, but uh, cute, okay. cute, cute. Yeah. <laughs> mm. so it is a kind of a, of a yeah, again, not certainly not the conventional uh, conventional song. When Bowie was to record the Black Star album, he took the home demo and he and he sent it to uh, the saxophonist Donny McCaslin before they started working on uh, on the album. And uh, he then hired his jazz quartet as the backing band for the album. And they started working on this as the 5th of January 2015 at the Magic Shop in New York City. You know, in, in contrast to the to the home demo where Bowie played, played all the instruments himself, this is a live backing track with McCaslin on saxophone and Tim Lafarve on bass and Jason Lindner on keyboard and Mark Giuliana on, on, on drums. McCaslin has said that the whole take took about 10 minutes and that they probably did it on the first take. Bo's vocal, all, most of the vocals except one or two were re-recorded, but um, his, uh, call it screams or something, in the end of the song, they were howling, from yeah. howling, yes, sort of uh, pushing the band on, uh, were from uh, one of the band takes. And he does sing uh, his vocal style. There is also he, he does sort of not necessarily scream, but he sort of really pushes up in the upper register uh, in this song, and and that has been mentioned by others as reminiscent of what he did on 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 uh, DJ, for example, track from nineteen seventy nine, where he kind of does a similar vocal style. One could say he certainly doesn't sound like a man who's. Uh uh, it's not. It's not a death song, at, at all. <laughs> it's no, it's full of life, and um, it's a happy song about uh, kind kind of a violent theme. I mean, this woman that he's singing about, she's violent. She punched him like a dude, and and treacherous. She stole his purse. But that was control. No patrol. Never got that line. Don't know what patrol is. The, the lyrics doesn't make literal sense. Uh, it, it's not a apparent. Uh, it's a swirling collage of of, of images, basically. Yes, I would mm. say so. In contrast to Sue, which is more like a short uh, novella, but also still just in fragments. Like he he likes it. <laughs> There's never a, a straight narrative uh, yeah. in Bowie's canon. But is is that in a way which he used to do with? Uh, 
you know, like cutting up these pieces of lyrics and then pasting them back together. I did it long before you know. You did long before you know, okay. Yeah, Yeah. It, it's the trick from uh, William S. Burroughs and Brian Geisen doing cut-ups. Um, you could see it in this documentary, Cracked Actor from the Diamond Dogs tour that he's doing it as far back as, um, as Diamond Dogs. But Chris O'Leary, who has this wonderful blog, Pushing Head of the Dame, he has pointed out that the title on this track, Spitzy, She's a Whore, is from a, a British play from 1633 by John Ford. And the plot of this play is very similar to the plot in the song Sue. Mm. So in a way, they are connected. They were the A-side and B-side of the single who came before the album but the, one has the title and one has the content and and is sue the the woman in the song perhaps yeah yeah we, even though they uh the context no content of the lyrics don't seem that connected they could be but it could be of course uh, cut up and it could be could be many things but at least it's um it gives us associations to violence to war sexuality there are lines that suggest a quite tumultuous relationship between the singer and the woman that he sings about and that at least is a familiar theme for for Bowie it goes back to songs uh, of the Onigi pop song China Girl for example and and Rebel Rebel song with, with you could say in that context a similar theme at least I know you call this song cute and sweet, but uh, I have to say I struggle a lot with this song with both versions. Both versions. But but I do prefer Bowie's vocal take. I think it's far superior on the album version than the the home demo. The home demo is interesting. I mean, it's uh, it's fun to imagine Bowie sitting there and just having a blast writing this piece of music, sitting and working all by himself. Mm. Uh, it's a wonderful image to have, but but uh, I, I certainly prefer the album version. It is a bit more contained, maybe, not as, as chaotic as, as the demo version, but, but still, it, it is a, a superior take, I would say, too. Yeah. The album version has so many details, little tricksies you can find if you listen to it on headphones, just so many details you can zoom in on but the uh, the demo version is in norwegian we would say sound porridge or sound collage sound collage in a way uh, yeah one noise drowns out the other uh, so they became more similar and there's not many details uh, left no it's it's definitely full of energy um and as much as I like this unorthodox instrumentation that is here, it I just get these images of screaming seagulls or some noisy droids from Star Wars or something. It's um, yeah, saxophone could sound like seagulls in the background. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. true. I, I thought of wasps, like bzz, 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 buzzing, uh, annoying. But both of them are <laughs> the annoying. Beginning. Yeah. Both of them are definitely <laughs> annoying. Yeah, they are. But it's also the tempo or the tempos uh, that make the song difficult uh, to listen to mm, because you mm. some have to shut out one part. <laughs> it, 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 what makes it so difficult is to listen to them put on top of each other. Yeah, 
that's that's why I mentioned the speed metal that yeah. it does the same thing because it's, it's really a high energy. It's like you're on a train and you can't just jump off. You just have to go along for the ride. So we could say the same way as Bowie described the song that this to you sounds as if Bowie would play speed metal. Yeah. Uh. I think we could say that. But it also reminds me of things that he did on uh, Black Tie, White Noise album. Yeah, there are actually, yeah, there, there are yeah. bits and pieces there that, that reminds me of that as well. That's yeah. true. The song punches us like a dude. It does. So that was Patrol. <laughs> or at least that was the song. So there we are at uh, the third track on Blackstar, Lazarus. This song was actually first heard, not on record, but in a live performance. Not by David Bowie, but by who, Chris? Uh, Michael C. Hall, who played the, the character of Thomas Jerome Newton in uh, the Broadway, was it off, off, off Broadway play called Lazarus, uh, written by uh, David Bowie and Ender uh, Walsh, premiered in early December 2015, about a week before the single was released. Lazarus is also the last song that Bowie performed live, meaning in front of a live audience, because he attended uh, the rehearsals for the Lazarus play, and on one occasion that autumn of 2015, he was overhearing the band uh, going through musical numbers, and they were asking him, do you have any opinions, suggestions? And then he said, yes, I would like to sing. So we joined them on stage, and he performed for one time only uh, Lazarus in front of uh, the cast. So that's his last performed song. And his last uh, appearance, as I said, in, in, in early December. And um, some, some days later in December, on, on 17th of December, the uh, single was released as a digital uh, download. Uh, it was a couple of weeks later accompanied by the music video, which came out on the 7th of, of January, which sadly was just three days before Bowie passed away. So in many ways, the song is considered Bowie's swan song. And according to Bowie's producer, Tony Visconti, the lyrics and the video of, of Lazarus was uh, intended to be a self-epitaph and a commentary on, on Bowie's own impending death. Viewing the video when it came out and a couple of days later, you know, it's a very different experience. It's, it's impossible to view the video without his, uh, his death being a part of it. Maybe you can, uh, no. can describe the video a little bit. The video is uh, directed by John Rank, who uh, also directed the Black Star video, and it uh, shows Bowie in two personas. One is the, his notes call it the somnambulist, the sleepwalker, the man with bandages and uh, buttons for eyes, who's mostly in bed, if I remember correctly, um, looking very ill, um, almost trying to break free from the bed, uh, but rising up, but going back into the bed and in the same room there's also this slightly scary looking grinning demon like Bowie uh, who uh, is dressed in he has the same outfit that he, he, he uh, has in uh, 
on the station to station, not the front cover, but the back cover and some editions where uh, I think it was Tom Shapiro who took the images where he had a black uh, sweater and, and um, drew some uh, lines, white lines on them di diagonally. And uh, in the original pictures, he's uh, also drawing the Kabbalistic tree of life. And he has the same outfit here, which also makes this connect to the station to station Bowie, just like uh, Black Star connected to station to station Bowie. And he, in the end, he, he uh, this grinning Bowie sits at the table and writes and uh, bites his teeth. It's like he's racing time to say what he has to say because before time runs out. And in a way, it, it, it was like that because uh, the video was filmed in November 2015 in, in Brooklyn, in New York, around the time when the doctors reportedly informed Bowie that there was nothing more they can do. Hmm. And in the end of the video, he, he puts down his pen and then he walks slightly backwards, sleepwalking type of way and into a closet that he closes. Very eerie ending uh, in, the, in the context. But, uh, I think John Rank said it was sort of a joke uh, proposed by one of the crew during the filming and Bowie took the idea and did it. And it works very well. It's both unsettling and very uh, touching. It's a very touching video uh, to view after his death. I think the, when I saw it before um, his death, it, it was more the unsettling part. Mm. Mm. Well, I remember also watching it before and my arms like the hair on my arms just stood up mm. by watching this performance but then then you just watch it as type of a bowie art piece you know that he has done several times before and then the news came a couple of days later and it's never going to be the same to watch that video no. ever again but it's nice to have him come full circle on a couple of things in on this album and, and in this video you can see the the mime <laughs> uh, that he mm. he uh, pursued in the beginning of his career and also in videos and stage performances all out his his career uh, it has a strong element of mime especially especially the end of the video with the uh, writing segment and walking backwards so um, don't mock the mime because this this is a mime that can erase your, the hair on your arms. Coming out when, when the video came out, and, 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 and uh, I mean, it, it seems almost like it was very, very well planned. Of course, he probably didn't know the date when he was, he was, he was dying, of course, but, but uh, you know, looking back at it now, it was, in a way, a perfect time to release that song. And it puts it in maybe... Uh, some some years back back to when when Johnny Cash released the Hurt video sort of uh, I mean there there are not many artists that can end their careers and 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 their lives in such a way in the public eye in public eye I mean I think it's only Bowie and Johnny Cash that has been uh, managed to achieve that by you know by coincidence or not but uh, uh, it's a it's a pretty impressive uh, feat to, to do that. Music video itself, I mean, it was released in, in, a, in a bit odd ratio, a one-by-one one ratio, squared ratio. There was actually a widescreen cut available for a very short while on YouTube before it was taken down. 
so that exists, of course, but but the official one is a one by one ratio. I don't think I ever heard or read any interpret explanation for that. No, no idea. But of course, the old silent movies um, that we mentioned on Black Star, and they were more more square, but Mm. not completely square. Uh, The music video itself it was nominated for three awards at uh, 2016 MTV Music Awards. It uh, was for best direction, best cinematography, and, and best editing. I don't think it won any of those. Black Star video, of course, for best uh, art direction. So over to um, the music. Um, the song, of course, starts very quiet. Starts with a single uh, bass line uh, played by Tim Lefavre, and he said that he was inspired by The Cure and uh, New Order, which kind of makes sense. They often use that sort of light. It, it's a very Peter Hooky opening. Yeah, it's he good. always plays the light bass notes. Could also be Joy Division, that opening. And uh, and Tim Lefarbe also crafted the intro. I mean, basically, I mean, that is basically the bass we're talking about here, the intro, and, and we hear it back again in, in, the, in the outro of the song. I said to be created that, and uh, it's also said that he was inspired by the band Fink. Just one guy, basically, Finn Greenall, unfamiliar to me, but... Mm. And then, of course, the main song starts. I uh, really love when, when the, the bass comes in and, and the drums come in there. And, and I must say, those first falling saxophone lines, they're... Uh, Amazing. It's some of the... I mean, that sad atmosphere they create, it's just incredible. I don't think I ever heard anything sadder in music than those, those saxophones. It's, it's so extremely mournful. No, it's something you would usually do with a synth. Theme, and here it's done with the saxophones and it gives it a completely different feeling. It, it has this um, unusual, almost kind of slow beat to it, mm. but it still keeps it together. And it reminds me of um, another drama that was playing with David Bowie, Sterling Campbell. Mm-hmm. And on a BBC performance, I think it's 2000, he, um, he says, he introduces him and then he says that. The way he plays, it's almost like he uh, he's just about to miss the beat and then he <laughs> just poof, he just comes and it gives you this kind of unexpectedness because it's a, he's a bit uh, slow mm. on the beat and that gives the song this kind of swing to it mm. that um, is really unique. And uh, My association is uh, Walk on the Wild Side, which is another... Bowie produced song by Lou Reed, but of course that's a happy song, but it's also this slow bass driven. But this is the the this is the dark New Orleans funeral march version of it. <laughs> N- never thought about that, but yeah, it could make sense. Yeah. I never thought about it as a happy song. So. No, certainly not. <laughs> well. And there's some interesting guitar playing on this uh, track there's different guitars and different guitarists Bowie plays uh, some of the guitar uh, the big chord going that's like, those stabs that stabs you hear. yes yeah. and um, you actually played that on a guitar that Mark Bolan gave him before he died yeah 
just a few weeks before 1977. Mm. And interesting soloing in the end from uh, McCaslin. Uh, I think that is, except from the beginning that you pointed out, uh, I think one of the standout moments is the the end, the last vocal part, and how it just melts into the saxophone, where the saxophone goes to where the vocal cannot. The saxophone becomes the voice, taking us into some voiceless, wordless uh, territory. It does, and that last verse there, uh, I mean, you have two verses and then like a bridge, and then it that goes straight into a third verse when it becomes particularly powerful. And the way he sings there and the way he delivers those lines, it reminds me a bit of uh, another song that I also found very powerful back on Heathen 2002 called um, Slip Away. Mm. At the end there as well, he kind of sings those lines there as mm. well in a very similar way. Both very powerful, and, uh, and and I really really like like when he does that. Yeah, that's also a masterpiece. That song. And then we have the lyrics, and and um, I mean, it does have a lot of images in there that certainly can be interpreted to Bowie's state at the time. Look up here, I'm in heaven. Mm. I have scars that can't be seen. I mean, it was written for the. Uh, play right or, or, the, or the musical but still it is very hard to imagine it not being about Bowie State at the time and, and the fact that he was had cancer at the time although he might not know, know, know then that he was dying it's still very hard to look away from the, that association there between the lyrics and the fact that he was sick with cancer he had the scars inside that couldn't be seen and, and uh, mm. that he later passed away from at the same time as it Definitely fits with the mal- the man who fell to earth. I'm so high it makes my brain whirl. Mm. Yeah, it, it's like many songs on his two last album that he he could be singing about himself, but he could also be the actor that he's always been playing characters, playing voices. It's obviously Thomas Jerome Newton's voice that it, as it is him who utters the song in the play Lazarus, but it's also, as Frodo said, it's almost impossible not to interpret it as Bowie singing about himself. Um, and I don't see why it has to be one or the other. It, uh, he probably deliberately did that on many songs, so uh, why not on this uh, as well? Uh, and uh, the video just adds to that interpretation that this is a, a song about himself Originally called Bluebird, I think. Uh, Imagine Bluebird in the in the end there, just like that Bluebird, uh, and that was the original title of the song. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and it was it was one of the songs that that Bowie took to Maria Schneider uh, when um, they made uh, a single uh, Sue together, next track on the album. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, uh, or you know, given the result of the song, may, maybe we should say also fortunately. She didn't have time to work on it. Although it would be very interesting to hear what she would have made out of it. It certainly wouldn't have sounded like this. But then maybe we wouldn't have gotten this version if she had worked on it. So. True. There are a couple, of, I mean, uh, obviously a serious song and, and, and the way it is, is associated with this, with this uh, impending death and all that. There are, there are some lines in there as well that sort of is line there, drop my cell phone down below. Ain't that mm. just like me? Like, huh, 
Mm. Oh, that's all typical me. Dropping my phone. And uh, yeah. then you have uh, in the bridge when you went to New York. I was looking for your ass. I think it's the same as the 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 more humorous parts of the video. That if the lyric had been all bleak and the video had been all bleak, it would have been almost unbearable. <laughs> but you have the beautiful melody and you have this this humor and this uh, surprising line in the song, and and that makes it very humane and it makes the song well. It it, it does not, make it not as close. No, I think it uh, adds to. That you can. This song isn't only about Bowie. It adds to several characters that you can uh, find. I can. I could easily see that this as a type of Wall Street character at times as well. You know, it's uh, so it doesn't only have to be limited to his kind mm. of artist uh, style. Doesn't close in on a certain interpretation, yeah. but it's it's open to live on. And McCaslin. Uh, took this song with him and performed it uh, after Blackstar was released uh, on several occasions and, and uh, at least one of them with Gail and Dorsey doing the, the Bowie vocal parts. And it's uh, very nice versions. So I'm sure there will be other uh, versions of this song from other artists in the future because it's a beautiful song. And I think uh, it's, uh, it's a song that has many possibilities of interpretation. It's uh, like a standard. It, there's something about it that it's like a standard. It has that uh, evergreen quality. It certainly has that evergreen quality. A classic, classic Bowie song being the last one he ever released while he was still alive. And then we have come to the fourth track on Black Star, which is Sue, or in the season of Crime. Uh, a song that Bowie co-wrote with Maria Schneider. It's the only song on the album that has more than one songwriter. And uh, Chris, do you have anything to say about this song? Well, together with Zipetti, uh, She's a Whore, it was one of the two tracks that were released uh, before the album. They were released uh, as the A-side and B-side of a single in uh, 2014, on the 17th of November. And uh, Sue... The title track of the single was also released uh, on a compilation called Nothing Has Changed that uh, David Bowie released in 2014. So this is a track that he obviously enjoyed um, as much as he wanted to include it in his next album, but the two uh, versions are very different. Uh, the Maria Schneider orchestra version, which is the single version, that's a, a large uh, lush or, or jazz orchestration while the black star version that's a hard uh, rocking drum and bass jazz fusion thing so they are opposites but of course there are many similarities as it is the same song and also it shares many of the instrumentalists because his black star band uh, they sort of emerged out of the maria schneider orchestra how about we take a listen to the single version of the song? Let's do that. Okay. Yeah, this is uh, this is actually better than uh, what I remembered, and I think uh, David's vocals on this one is really impressive. 
Well, it certainly isn't like a crooning, just crooning type of, of vocals, and it, and it does it great. It's David Bowie, and at the same time, it fits very well into this uh, jazz style for sure. But well, he has some sort of a floating quality with his vocal take here. It's like it's not pinned down to the rhythm all the time. It's like a layer on top of other layers, and I think the whole song is like that, uh, at, at least in the beginning, where you have the the rhythmic underpinning of the bass and the the very frenetic drums in the start, and then. You have these melody layers of um, the horns and the various other instruments. And then you have Bowie on top of that. And they seem to be going at different speeds or doing different things. But sometimes they align and then you get some extra uh, power when everything aligns. Mm. I like the build-ups that you get uh, after each verse or in between the verse when you sort of... Yeah get a deep bass note for everyone it's one of the places where where everyone aligns yeah and that is a great effect in between the verses it's a much more um and i don't think it's much more structured in a way in the beginning of the song and then uh, especially uh, as you come to the bridge or the, or the solo part after that it kind of floats out a bit more it, it dissolves in after a, the the goodbye sue uh, part it does, and in a way, it also that also follows the 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 direction the lyrics take. Mm. Oh, yeah. The lyrics also starts very, or at least quite positive. You know, we got a job, and now they can buy the house, and the X-ray is fine. X-ray is fine, and and uh, he's bringing her home. But then it it goes progressively darker after that. Mm. There's also. In the very introduction of the song, there's also more feedback from the guitar and it seems like it's going in a different path than what it actually ends up doing. It seems like a more straightforward mm. type of rock song and then suddenly it uh, goes into this fusion land. Yeah, and then after this slow, runny part, then it full-on uh, comeback in the, in the end with all the instruments. and mm. It builds to a climax and then falls apart. Mm. So Bowie recorded a song with uh, the Maria Schneider Orchestra and, and it is of course uh, Schneider who is arranging the song and that has uh, writing credit on the song. He wanted to collaborate with her and, and he went to see her in New York at the Birdland Club in uh, May 2014 where he shared this demo with her uh, alongside another demo which later became uh, the Lazarus song which she didn't have the time to, to work on. So they only ended up working on this particular song. And I think it was her that then recommended some of her band members to join him for the rest of this album, uh, led by Donny McCaslin on, on saxophone, which also does a wonderful job on, on, on uh, this recording here. Mm. He so, does. so they experimented with harmonies and, and other ideas, and both of them contributed to, to the final product. Uh, there are also two other credits to this song, uh, composition credit. Uh, Paul Bateman and Bob Bamra from um, Plastic Soul. And the reason for that, uh, obviously they weren't part of recording the song itself but or, or, or writing the song, but uh, uh, the bass line in the song, and you hear that particularly well on, on the album version, bears uh, resemblance to the bass line from their song Brand New Heavy from 1997 a drum and bass song that they made that year. Interesting that they are called Plastic Soul, because that is a phrase. I'm, I'm not sure if he coined the phrase, but uh, he used it to describe his Young American album. 
and it has since become a term for white soul in the more artificial department. Mm. Or maybe it was just him being not so sure of himself that he couldn't call it soul, so he had to call it plastic soul. Yeah. So the uh, workshop for the song uh, started in, in mid-June in, in 2014, and uh, the final recording session took place on the 24th July 2014 at Avatar Studios in uh, New York City, with, as I mentioned, the full orchestra of Maria Schneider. Uh, they did consider future collaborations. Uh, Schneider admired Bowie's uh, diverse music knowledge and his passion for jazz, uh, but unfortunately that never turned out to be the case. Schneider actually later won Grammy Award for Best Arrangement, Instrumental and Vocals for her work on this song in, in 2016. But it would have been a very different album if this had been the blueprint for the whole of the Black Star album. It, it would have been more more jazz, maybe not as dark, and the special sound of Black Star, which uh, Visconti called having jazz musicians playing rock, instead mm. you would have had jazz musicians playing jazz, most likely. And then <laughs> that would have been a new new album for Bowie, but uh, maybe not a new album for the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, this version is definitely more more jazzy than anything on on, on the Black Star, I would say. At, le- at least as a, as a full piece of music it is. Mm. Yeah, and the whole um, sort of jazz feeling of it, it, it uh, comes from all the freedom that the musicians were, were given during the recording. There were hardly any musical charts, um, which allowed for a lot of improvisations. There are 17 musicians in all, alongside uh, David Bowie and the band leader Schneider. So it's, uh, I'm not sure Bowie ever recorded any other songs with that many musicians. Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> so it, it is clearly a, a intricate piece of music, but it only has two chords, G major and, and E minor. Yeah, but still there's there's a lot you can do with two chords, as we can hear. You can actually make a seven minutes long song that has very complex parts. Uh, but of course, to have a simple arrangement like that with with two chords makes it also easier to do improvisation on it it certainly is there was actually also a music video directed for or, or made for sue uh directed by tom hingston uh, it features uh, noirish uh, footage of bowie performing uh, with the orchestra and the lyrics are projected onto a wall behind him and then uh, Bowie, of course, brought the song to the Black Star sessions and recorded it with several of the musicians that he had played the uh, original uh, Maria Schneider version with. Uh, in addition to Ben Monder, who was the guitarist, and uh, James Murphy from LCD Sound System, who played some percussion on this uh, album version of the, of the song. The backing track was recorded on 2nd of February 2015 at the Magic Shop Studios. And as Bowie did with several of the songs on the album, he re-recorded the vocals at Human Studios in April uh, year, in 2015. Maybe we should take a listen to the album version now. Yes, well, that is definitely a more compressed and intense version than uh, the original. And I think it also reminds, it reminds me of um, some of his stuff from Earthling. And it has some kind of element in there 
with the, the breakdown of the, um, the baseline that it's really hard. If you have ever seen the movie Blade, I don't know, it, I think it came out in the late 90s or something. And it has these type of things in the soundtrack that is really, yeah, heavy. It definitely is more heavy, uh, much more punch in it, uh, industrial. Those breakdowns you're talking about, to me, they remind me a lot of Nine Inch Nails type industrial yeah. drill music. Really great. Um, and, and these build-ups that we talked about in the single version is also maybe, at least to me, even more effectful here. Mm. They, they punch even more than on the, the single version, which is probably because they use a bit other instruments, of course, that make that possible. Do you have a favorite version of those two? I like the album version best, I think. Though they are different, um, I like this punch, the drive that it has. Even though it's still, you know, Bowie's vocal is more confrontational, but it's still a bit floating. Mm. Maybe it's all the reverb that, that makes it sound like a sermon on top of like some crawling frenetic chaos in the, the yeah. bottom. I, I think it's the drums, you know, you, you cannot... You cannot not listen to the drums because they mm. they pierce through, they whip you along. I think the drums, at least in the first part of the single version, it is not that different. They're mixed much louder in the album version, mm. uh, and they're much more more uh, much more easy to identify. But uh, it is very drum and bass ish also on on the on the single version actually. Although in, at the later mm. part of the song, as we talked about mm. earlier, it tends to float a bit more out, and it's not as you don't have that driving rhythm anymore. But, no, uh, th that is true. I uh, mm. I always thought I like uh, the album version better. Today I'm uh, I don't know. I will root for the original actually, especially mm. because of the um, the vocals. They're both great versions, that must be mm. said. But uh, I, I think I yeah I think I will put my money on the on the album version as well. But the saxophone is more subdued in mm. the, the album version. It's more. Short, stingy, yeah. <laughs> like a wasp, and um, it also has a more, it's more explosive. Uh, even though they they have a, a sort of a climax in the end, this is this is more this is like a total. You know, you put the the brush in in black and you just paint over. It's full on rage for a couple of bars in the mm. end, mm. and then it's sort of like a machine that breaks down. Mm -hmm. they, did, uh, they did actually record several different versions of, of the song for the album and, and one was uh, much more of a jazz quartet style mm. which, which certainly would have sounded different uh, uh, and there was yet another version where they, they jammed even more freely than they do on any of the versions Bowie wanted a more urgency and an edge to this version and I would say mission accomplished mm. yeah, on that he, one he definitely achieved that and, and he wanted the musicians to be more spontaneous mm. and uh, let their instruments sort of drive the feel and, and direction. In uh, Bowie's notes for the album, he called it Re-Su. Mm. There are a couple of places, uh, I mean, you mentioned, Tron, uh, you certainly had a, a, a 90s Bowie feeling of, of, of the song and, and uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you mentioned Earthling, but there is also pieces in here that reminds me very much on, on music from outside. 
continuing, particularly after the fourth verse where, where it goes into um, some particularly high notes. Uh, it reminds me a lot of a small plot of land on outside, where he, mm. which in a way is a little bit similar. Also has this floating lyrics on top of a kind of jazzy, hard music underneath it. Mm. I agree. Yeah, I do. I do too. And I think the, um, it has a bit of that darker atmosphere that you find on outside. Maybe not so much on Earthling. Yeah. Mm. A little fun fact here: uh, the song ends with Bowie singing "Sue, I Never Dreamed," and that phrase the title of the first song Bowie ever recorded with his first band, The Conrads, in 1963. <laughs> uh-huh. Was it intentional? Who knows? Maybe that song was always on his mind. Yeah, maybe it was. So, so how about the lyrics? We already talked a little bit about it before, the way it starts out very positive and it goes into uh, more darker territory. It, it Almost like a murder song in the end here, but uh, not in the end, but in the middle. It sort of indicates that there's mm. violence, uh, you know, uh, talks about uh, Sue the Virgin on your on your stone for your grave. For I know that you have a son, oh folly Sue. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, those old Victorian era or turn of century songs with the report on a, a crime a murder ballad, as Nick Cave would call it, um, those type of all moral tales, but in a, in a modernist version, because it's not a tale that is easy to, you can transcribe the action that easy. It's more like short impressionistic images. And, then, and when you put them together, you see that, okay, it resembles this old murder ballad. Mm. I, I think that's spot on. I always thought he had actually written it for a Victorian crime musical <laughs> because when you hear the the lyrics, that's what it sounds like. And it, and it is coupled as well to to Tisipiti, She Was a Whore, that was the B-side of the single. Yes, because uh, Ford, uh, who wrote the play that the title, Spitty, She's a Whore, came from, uh, the plot of that play is similar, although in a renaissance setting but uh, uh, you could say that uh, there are versions of the same tale of a man being uh, framed or betrayed by his wife who has uh, an affair uh, with uh, that fool as he says here so i think chris o'leary said in his in his book uh, ashes to ashes that he took the plot from ford's play and put it into sue and he took the title to the b-side and you, Tron, you mentioned uh, Nick Cave before, and, and, and one thing I've thought about before as well, in, in the fourth verse, he sings uh, about kissing your face, Sue, I pushed you down beneath the weeds. It reminds me very much of that scene in Where the Wild Roses Grow, in a video or uh, together with Kali Minogue. It's basically what he does there, Nick Cave, right? He pushes her down beneath the weeds and... Hits her with a rock. Kiss her face. And hits her with a rock, yes. Mm. Mm. Um, but then uh, in the last verse it's sort of she's clearly not dead she left him he found her note that she wrote last night and and he can't believe that she's gone right from the start you went with that clown he says in the end so maybe it's uh, just revenge thoughts in his head or it could be in uh, 
different order the verses okay. or he he kills her in a suspicion and then he he finds the note afterwards mm. who knows I, I don't think we should um, lock the interpretation into a narrative because this is boy after all and he he's not too often um, interested in conveying a, a liner story something exact but he wants to give us some points to our association that takes us to various places and of course this is a, it's a dark musically it's a dark song and lyrically it's um, of course a horrible story and um, the noir feeling of the video of course i think it, it would be the jazz of the single version that puts this story into a noir territory but it you know could easily fit today or the renaissance except for the x-ray of course <laughs> so then we have come to the fifth track on Black Star, Girl Loves Me, a song written by David Bowie. What do you think of the lyrics, Tom? Well, um, I guess there is some kind of intricate things in these lyrics that I haven't really caught on to. Um, it certainly is. Yeah. Um, in the song, uh, Bowie incorporates Polari and Natsat, which are two, well, at least one of them is fictional uh, languages or dialects, so to speak. Natsat is the fictional language that, that is used in A Clockwork Orange, the novel by Anthony Burgess. It's kind of uh, based out of uh, yeah, Russian words, I think. Mm. Where words like Malchik, Devochka, which is boy and girl in, in, in mm. Russian, for example. Mm. The other uh, slang or, or uh, language or what you can call it is uh, Polari, which was used by various communities uh, from early 1900s. Uh, but it came into British mainstream in the 1960s and the TV comedy series called Round the Horn. And it was used by the gay subculture in the 1960s where people assume that uh, that's where, where Bowie picked it up from especially in the show business in, in circus that's where it came from hmm. but mostly in the gay part of it and Bowie has used both of these languages before um, like Polaris in, in Julie Brothers and, and some of the of his early songs and uh, Nadsat is uh, well it's mentioned in, uh, in Surfajet City Hey Droogy Don't Crash Here Mm. And he's also a big fan of Clockwork Orange in the his Ziggy Stardust era, where he has uh, stage uniforms and so on that are mm. inspired by the aesthetics of, uh, of the Stanley Kubrick uh, movie of the Clockwork Orange. So, so there is kind of a link between the glam period of Bowie, not certainly not musically, not really lyrically either, but you know, with these associations to a Clockwork Orange. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm not sure where I heard it or read it. It might be uh, Lea Cardos. It might be uh, an interview with McCaslin. Um, come to think of it, maybe it was uh, Aslan Mohammed's uh, excellent album-to-album album podcast. But I think it, 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 what the sense was that uh, instead of doing a rap in this song, which maybe someone suggested, um, Boy was not comfortable with doing that because it's not his. You know, when using Nadsat and Polari, that would be 
his youth when he was mm. young and that's the type of slang that uh, so, so it would fit him to have a spoken word slash rap in that language while it would not fit with having a, a rap like rap music goes, today he almost goes into it in this what you could call the bridge or that is more like a multi-voice thing that he does where he mm. almost raps over himself yes so the, i guess that's the part that was meant to be more thought of as a rap it's possible it's only only mickey rook who made a rap on the bowie album mickey rook, mickey rook. <laughs> <laughs> tough guy <laughs> so uh yeah well you said double tracked vocals there are lots of vocals here there's lots it's, of vocals double track triple tracked quadruple tracked i don't know what it is but mm. it's, he seems to be intertwining intertwining yeah. yes and uh especially when you listen to this on headphones they are all over the place and so are the instruments so it's a very spatial mix yeah and to, and to me that part is uh the most interesting of the whole song um this is probably the only song that i'm halfway i'm just bored <laughs> the song could just stop for me after the the bridge because there's there's like nothing new being introduced it just goes on there, like, there's a small sort of breakdown bridge in the middle where which actually is the part i like the most to me as well it's not a great song it's it's okay song mm. but uh, i would say maybe a low point on the album for me uh, but but I do like uh, like that little break after his finish with the, with the verses, and and there's a nice build up before we could come back into the into the main groove of the song again. Yeah, I, I think I would disagree, um, as I think that little bridge, or the, I think there's two two of them. Um, that those are the parts that I do not enjoy that much, but the rest of the song I do enjoy. So I think this is a good song. Uh, what I like about it is this mechanical slow just not droning but you know it, it's like a drum machine but of course it's a combination of drum machine with live drumming or so it sounds but it just just slugs on mm. like a slug at a slow pace and he has this um, call and response in mm. in this part that i think is wonderful it's call and response and there's call and there's no response it's just some uh, strings or a synthesizer yeah i think it's a great punch when that part comes in um i guess we can also mention for us that knows chris that he has a bit higher level of tolerance for these type of songs than most people <laughs> yeah well uh, this reminds me of uh, a bowie b-side that uh, i think it should have been on on ours called no one calls so yes i have a high Definitely uh, a, a resemblance. <laughs> I also uh, yeah. I also feel when I hear, hear this song, and that is also a song that I uh, maybe not not among my favorite Bowie songs as well. So <laughs> I guess we have different tastes there at least. And if we should go a little bit back before that, um, the previous album Earthling, and there's um, an EP uh, he made with Trent Reznor. Uh, Trent Reznor uh, from Nine Inch Nails, where he remixed "I'm Afraid of Americans," mm. not only in one but in uh, five different mixes, and you have the the single version that we all have heard. But if we continue, you you have a hip hop version with Ice Cube, and you have this droning ambient slug version, and you also have this 
sort of never-ending industrial dub that just goes and goes on for 11, 12 minutes. And this is in the same area, I would say. The perfect <laughs> song for you. Mm. Oh, never-ending <laughs> industrial dub. That sounds <laughs> promising. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, I mean, if we go slightly back to the lyrics as well. I mean, when when you when you hear the song, the lyrics doesn't sound as weird as when you read it. Reading the lyrics is like I have no idea what this is about. But it it's kind kind of make more sense when when you actually hear it, sung. So it, it seems to be about someone a little a little bit on the edge. There's a part uh, talking about parties and and drugs and the police coming and turning up and. Uh, where the yeah. fuck did Monday go? Mm. It's not happy sentiment. It certainly isn't. But we also made a, made a full demo of this song before the Black Star uh, recording. Donnie McCaslin has recalled that the demo had flutes instead of strings for the song, which is quite mm. interesting. And, and Bowie had uh, used uh, two overlapping uh, drum parts for the demo. And... Mm. Uh, drummer Juliana, he couldn't play both sim simultaneously, but he tried to capture the essence of, of the tunes. So it would have been interesting to hear that mm. demo. Maybe we will in, uh, at some stage. The backing track was recorded uh, as the other uh, songs on this album was uh, at the Magic Shop studio in New York City. It happened on 3rd February 2015. Bass guitarist on, on the album, Tim Lefavre, he also plays uh, guitar on this song in addition to bass. And he was borrowing uh, Bowie's guitar and used a lot of effects. Uh, Bowie did sing the song live with the musicians, but again, as with many of the other songs on the album, he re-recorded them later at Human Studios in, in April and May that same year. Uh, an additional musician that also uh, was involved on this track particularly was James Murphy from LCD uh, Sound System. So he played percussions and added synth treatments to the song. Maybe a little bit similar to what Brian Eno did for Bowie back in the days. And mm. um, according to Donnie McCaslin, Murphy did some significant alterations to the song in, in his studio. Well, uh, Bowie and, um, and Murphy and they had met uh, before when Bowie, it was around the next day. 2013. 2013, yeah that um, uh, Murphy was producing Arcade Fire's uh, Reflector album. And Bowie had played with Arcade Fire uh, before in the early 2000s on a TV uh, performance. And he, uh, for some reason, I don't know why, uh, was in the studio and he heard the song Reflector and he thought it was very good and said something along the lines of, you should finish up and mix it now or I will steal it. So. They ended up giving him three or four lines that he recited um, in the song. And he's not credited except, I think, thank you to Mr. B or something like that. Mm. <laughs> mm. In the title track. Yeah, and then the song was released, of course. Uh, it actually received quite positive feedback from, from the music press. Uh, Rolling Stones even referring to it as a standout moment. So there may be a bit more on side in this well the rolling stone was always on the wrong side when it comes to <laughs> comes to critical perception <laughs> um, and it actually managed to go in on some charts it peaked at number 87 on the dutch top 100 and uh, 146 
in the UK singles chart. The Dutch. That's <laughs> impressive, I guess. <laughs> I th- uh, actually, I think most of the tracks on the album uh, probably streamed a lot, uh, especially in the time after uh, Bowie's untimely death. So, so mm. I managed to go in on, on several of the charts. Um, Maybe it was someone trying to understand the lyrics and just heard it again. Again. Yeah, and again. <laughs> what the hell is he singing about? <laughs> yes. You can find some translations online if you look long and hard enough, but uh, it didn't give that much more information, I would say. It's still a mystery. Well, well, I have the translation there. It, it kind of makes more sense, of course. Uh, but, but it is like I said before, it is people living on the edge, having a great time being in touch with the police and so on. It, it's kind of maybe sounds a little bit clockwork orange-ish in a way. M- maybe not so, so much of, with, with the violence that is in, in that movie but uh, or, or novel. But um, I sort of get the sense that it could have fitted well into that uh, environment in a way. Mm. So you do have some, some, as we talked about, some references back to his uh, uh, glam rock days. Uh, and there's also uh, a line in the song, I'm sitting in a chestnut tree. It has been suggested that it is a reference to George Orwell's 1984 novel, which of course David Bowie uh, once uh, planned to write a musical for, which didn't end up becoming a musical, but he used some of the music on the Diamond Dogs album, where you, of course, also have the track 1984. Uh, the line in the novel is referring to someone singing, under the spreading chestnut tree, I sold you and you sold me, which again is a line from a song called The Chestnut Tree by Glenn Miller from 1939. So, uh, yeah, so that's yet another sort of link back to his glam rock days. But you also have another... Uh, Yes, possible. Uh, Chris O'Leary's wonderful book, Ashes to Ashes, cannot recommend it enough. He also found another um, literary reference because Bowie has a tendency to put a lot of lit- literary references. Well, it was a, a writer called Janko Svetkov. Apology for the <laughs> pronunciation. They, he suggested to uh, Chris O'Leary that. Um, Gabriel, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude uh, also has a scene where uh, a character is uh, trapped in a perpetual Monday. Where the fuck did Monday go? And uh, his family gets frustrated and then he starts to destroy the house and they held him down and then they drag him away and has the quote to the chestnut tree in the courtyard where they left him tied up, barking in the strange language. So, not sure if that is uh, something that was on Bowie's mind as well. But it certainly uh, fits into the scheme of the song, it does. Well, Bowie speaks in a strange language uh, about Monday and the chestnut tree, but mm. could be a coincidence, uh, of course, um, or maybe he's thinking of all these references together. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, could also be the unconscious mind of Bowie that works in mysterious ways. So. so now we have come to the sixth track on Black Star, Dollar Days, a song written by David Bowie. 
And unlike the other songs on Black Star, Dollar Days didn't have any demos recorded. It was made up in the studio. Bowie picked up the guitar one day and just started playing this song, basically. The rest of the band learned the song on the spot and, and they recorded it. So it was recorded during the, the second period or second session of the Black Star uh, recordings on 6th of February 2015 at the Magic Shop Studios. Yes, I uh, really, really like that song. I I completely agree. And I know I've, I was a bit harsh when it came to the seagull saxophone on This is a Pity she's, She Was a Whore. But in here, I think the saxophone just is brilliant. It just really makes the song for me. Mm. It's a beautiful solo. It's a beautiful solo, but, but uh, I must say also... Uh, the choruses here are, are really brilliant. You lift the whole song and, and uh, hair rising on my arms every time I hear that, the chorus. It's, it's a slow beginning. It's very beautiful opening with the instrumentation. Very yeah. lush, melancholic. And then you get the first verse, which is more in the same vein. And then the refrain, I'm dying to part comes. And it's like you know, wave after wave hitting something. <laughs> It's, uh, I think it's quite brutal contrast to the rest of the song. At, at least that's how I interpret it when I first heard it. And still, there's a contrast between the, the verses and the refrain, which is... Um, and, and also in the end, I think it might not be so, but uh, I have the impression that his voice is sort of not going, but it, it sounds thinner in the end, more fragile. There's a lot of double tracking vocals on this album, but maybe they took away some so that he sounds more vulnerable and, and fragile mm -hmm. in the end because it's like this old Bowie voice uh, that we heard on um, on the next day, uh, the first single, Where Are We Now? Uh, when it's like a shock, is this how Bowie sounds now? He sounds old. But then the rest of the album came and that, of course, was... Not the case, that was a, a mannerism that he made for that song. Um, and well, I, think, uh, I hear some of the same in this. Hmm. If it's intentional, if it's um, him really being old and sick, or if it's something made to fit the lyrics, we will never know. Just as the, the lyrics could be very personal, and they could also not be personal. Um, the same could say about how he yeah, makes his voice in, in this song. It is at least widely believed that it is personal. That the song is about boy grappling with his impending death and it certainly fits into the theme of the album of mortality, legacy mm. and the end of life. Yeah, I, I, I get that. But I, I guess I also, if there had been other songs from his later albums, not Black Star, that hadn't been in here, we might also interpret it like that. I'm just thinking of Days, for instance, from mm. Reality, I think, mm. where he sings like, I have nothing much to offer. Uh, no, what am I saying? That's Absolute Beginners. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, that's not the one I'm thinking about. No, but if we take the lyrics, Cash Girls, which is not something we have today, but that's something that the shops had 100 years ago. So it's not Bowie's time period. <laughs> it, it could be a reference. He could be speaking about something um, he's read or uh, his 
the lyrics could take place in the past, but also there's so many things said here that could be interpreted to be him saying, speaking about himself at the end of his life. I mean, it could be just that he's getting old. So, I mean, even if he wasn't dying here, you know, he was still at his later part of his life. Yes, so, he was. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The the part I wanted to reference in uh, Days is uh, I get nothing in return and there's little left of me. And that also to me was kind of like, okay, he's getting older. Mm. We don't know how much longer he has left, but then uh, that was uh, a long time before this came mm. out. And this trick of doing this vulnerable side, like the mm. way he sings, I guess it's also something he did before Where Are We Now, even. Yes, he's, he's, been, he's been doing that a lot, uh, making deliberate, we would assume, uh, ambiguous statements uh, when he did the, al- the Hours uh, album. Um, I mean, he does sing here, I'm dying to push their backs against the grain and fool them all again and again. Yeah. Yes. It's very direct. <laughs> <laughs> That's ambiguous. <laughs> But in the, on the Hours uh, album cover, there was the 1999 um, Hours Bowie uh, cradling uh, the presumably dead uh, 1997 Earthling Bowie. So he is deliberately referencing himself. But in the lyrics, they sound very personal. And then he said somewhere that no, he was writing from the perspective of a man in his age, but not himself. So he could be doing that here as well, both writing from the perspective of a man in his age and situation and, and part of life, but also he could be writing <laughs> about uh, himself or the. There's a lot of ambiguity. Let, yes, many possibilities, and I think he he wants to keep us guessing, he wants to fool us. And, and and the, of course, one thing that he repeats over and over here is, you can say, in the context of when it came out and, 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 and what we know now with Bowie being sick and dying, is very ambiguous. Mm. Where he said, don't believe just for one second, I'm forgetting you, I'm trying to, I'm dying to. Mm. Of course, I'm dying to is, is you know, you, you want to do something very, very hard or, or um, you know, you're trying very hard, you're dying to do something, right? Mm. But it can also be interpreted as, Oh, by the way, I'm dying too. I'm also dying. I'm also dying. <laughs> yes. I, I don't think he would have meant it like that, but at least it's in the, in the context, an ambiguous uh, line. Another thing also here in the, in the text that certainly puts that in, in, in that direction as well is, uh, you mentioned it in, in both verses actually, if I'll never see the English evergreens I'm running to, it's nothing mm. to me, it's nothing to see. Of course, uh, he, him being in, uh, being from England and, and living in uh, America for uh, the last 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. And him being sick, I wonder if he, was he longing to, to go back to England and, and hoping to see the evergreens of England again and uh, knew that he wouldn't have the chance to do that at this stage? I don't know. Hmm. But, it, but if that is the case it is a, actually a very heartbreaking line but it's also an ambiguous line because it means nothing to me mm. there's nothing to see yeah. is that? I so, don't care about that <laughs> yes it's like you know he's, yeah. he's mm. conveying some sadness but also some I, I don't care 
mm. attitudes. I don't know. I, I take that as more like a self comfort. I don't. I don't quite believe that's what he meant. But what we do know is that w- one of Bowie's last statements, one of the last public statements, was when he got. Um, I think it was a Brit Award for the next day, and it was accepted by uh, Kate Moss in uh, one of the Siggy costumes. And this was uh, the time of the Scottish uh, independence referendum in 2014. And she delivered a message from Bowie that was, Scotland, please stay with us. Mm. With us. Meaning he <laughs> he still felt like an Englishman, mm. even though he had lived in New York for yeah, 30 years or so. And also before that, Switzerland and Berlin and LA and all over the place. Mm. There's still some England in there somewhere. Well, we take one song at a time, but these two last songs, they actually connect in a very beautiful way. Mm. <laughs> I think the bridge where uh, Dollar Days turns into, I can't give everything away, uh, it is one of the perfect little moments of the album. Actually, I can't give everything away. It starts at the very beginning of, of uh, at mm. least the way it is. The, the, the tracks are split up. Yes. Mm. Mm. So, um, but but that being said, uh, I've always felt that Dollar Days would have been more suitable as the last track. Then I can't give it everything away. I mean, they're both great songs. They both sort of have that melancholic feeling, and are both in a way uh, farewell songs, you could say, mm-hmm. but um, or can be interpreted as that. But but I do feel that Dollar Days would have an even better ending to the album, actually. That's an interesting thought. We should uh, re-sequence it and see what we think. Mm. <laughs> Maybe they tried it and it didn't fit for all I know. Who knows? Yeah, that's possible. Mm. Uh, I, personally, I think the lyrics of I Can't Give Everything Away is a better ending, which we will probably cover in a few minutes when we get to that song. But um, it's also I agree that it would be a, a good ending, but... Just as we said when we d- were discussing the Lazarus track, that if the Lazarus track would have been the last, that would have been very sad. <laughs> and also with Dollar Days, mm. that I Can't Give Everything Away ends on a little bit more optimistic note. Well, uh, so does Dollar Days, at least musically. It is very uplifting, that last, very powerful with the saxophone, mm. that melody that that plays. Mm. It's like a theme there. It, it is... Uh, like triumphant ending to the song which also would have been a very triumphant ending to to the album but uh, i agree it's sentimental but it's not sad no uh, i mean it's kind of it's not sad like lazarus is sad but it has a me- melancholy which uh, of course can be sad in the context of the, of the album and all mm. but uh, it doesn't end sad at least it ends like yeah as i said in, in a triumphant way and, and uh Positive vibes there at the end. Okay, so then we have arrived at the final track on Bowie's album, uh, Black Star. I can't give everything away. Written by Bowie himself, and um, of course, being the final track on his final album, it very much represents his uh, farewell to us uh, fans. It maybe is one of the songs that are more type of familiar in the Bowie the Bowie universe. It doesn't particularly say that it belongs on this album to me. It's not 
soul type of jazz fusion. It might as well be from Black Tie White Noise. Yeah, mm. I had the same feeling if I was going to put it on some other album. That might have been the album I would have picked as well. Something about the early 90s rhythm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's something with that uh, synth strings as well, that mm. way that is played, that I can't quite put my finger on it, but it, it reminds me of something of early 90s Bowie. And I like that fact, that it's kind of, that's the way the album is ending, because it's almost like talking a bit to the past again. Mm. Mm. I think it's a, be- it's a beautiful, uh, grand track. Uh, it's almost hypnotic. If you stop and listen to it, it, it's hypnotic. If you don't, then it might be a bit annoying if it's not in background because it's uh, it's actually quite intense because mm-hmm. the sound is so saturated with layers and and uh, so you have to you know concentrate uh, for it not to be annoying. <laughs> but if you concentrate, it's a very beautiful track, mm. and um, I think it's a very fitting ending for Bowie's. Um, last ever album because um, it has this this grandeur of, of, of um, both vocal and the, the music and and the, not at least the lyric which we'll come back to later um, but there's also this drum machine track that keeps it down to earth and grounds it mm. so if you wouldn't have had this tinny simple drum machine track then it would have been maybe pompous or too too grand um but, but um and, but and the drums are actually from the demo version of the song yes it is the the drums and the, um, the harmonica playing is uh, lifted from bowie's home demo mm. and into this track but I, I i think that grounds the track keeps it from not going into broadway and this is the end of the show uh, thing um, and I think that's something he does a lot. Maybe it's the English thing where you cannot be too serious. You have to have a little wink mm. uh, <laughs> to the audience. Uh, it's like when, we, when we, we're discussing Black Star, the song, you know, the, 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 the lyrics uh, and, and the video, they're very dark. But then you have this Muppet uh, kind of monster <laughs> in the end. And uh, the, the last uh, notes are this wobbly synthesizers. So there's always a bit of humor uh, in there. And I think in this song, uh, the drums, how they stop, and then they start over again like a home uh, accordion. Mm. Mm. You mentioned yeah. the, uh, the harmonica there as well, which is also coming from, from the home demo. And we were talking about things this song reminds us of, but obvi- there's an obvious similarity between uh, the harmonica part and uh, the harmonica in, in A New Career in a New Town from, mm. uh, from Bowie's album Low from 1977. Yeah, we were even talking about if it could have been sampled from that track uh, before we went to, to this recording, but, but it is Bowie playing or re-recording it at least for, uh, for the home demo. It's very similar. Mm. Mm. It's obviously intentional to, to quote himself what to make of it it's not easy to say and i mean it it doesn't feel like a coincidence that he chose that song a new career in a new town i mean come on (laughs) when he's died (laughs) they also named one of the tracks lazarus who rose from the dead 
Yeah. So there's a lot of. Um, so he's giving a hint that he's <laughs> going to have a new career in a new town uh, after his death. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Never thought about that. It, but, ma- yeah. it makes all sense to me. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we should take a look at the lyrics, they are very short. They are uh, four lines, and uh, I can't give everything away. Two verses with four lines. And I think the, the last one, seeing more and feeling less, saying no but meaning yes. This is all I ever meant. That's the message that I sent. That's a it sums up uh, David Bowie's uh, lyrics, I think. Yes, it's uh, Zen-like and it's uh, self-contradictory. Uh, it, it, it's what we would expect as a last statement. Uh, if it was meant as a last statement, but as we know, he he did not men, mean it as a last statement. Uh, he was planning to record more, but he probably knew that it could be his last statement. So, mm. so all he ever meant was saying no, but meaning yes. And and we are sitting here and in, interpreting the lyrics and all, and, and Bo is telling us, you know, we can't give everything away. No. Mm. Once pushes back against the wall and fool us all again, as I said mm. in the previous song leading up to this. But but this song has also, uh, you know, in, in the context of the mortality theme of the album, and, and, and again, uh, with, with Bowie being sick at the time, being also been interpreted in that direction as well, you know, when it starts by singing, I know something's very wrong, and he has uh, skull designs upon his shoes, and things like that, which is a symbol of death, of course. Blackout hearts. Yes, exactly. Skull designs upon my shoes. I, I just thought that is something about walking with death. Mm. It's like a memento mori carrying around mortality on his sneakers. Yeah, I can, I can have sworn I've seen that design on some sneakers. I don't know if it's Converse or something. But uh, they definitely exist if it's not only something I dreamt. And it, uh, yeah, and there was also a music video created for this song as well. Uh, again, by Jonathan Barnbrook, who did uh, the album cover. And uh, it is an animated lyric video. Barnbrook has said that his intent with the video was to celebrate Bowie's life and express human optimism. And in a way, that this musically, the song does that, I would mm. say. It isn't quite as melancholic as Dollar Days, for example, and uh, it's a bit uplifting as well. It was quite popular. Uh, it reached several international charts, peaking at number 50, 45 on the Swiss hit parade charts, hmm. 141 on UK singles chart, and 142 in, in France. Pitchfork actually ranked it as the 23rd best song of 2016. Does that mean they rated this the highest of Bowie songs? Uh, I don't know, actually. Hmm. Only the 23rd. Only the 23rd. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could be that there are, you know, Blackstar, Lazarus, uh, Sue for that matter, are higher, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't seen the list, but uh, I know that this song was on, on the 23rd place. And um, there's also exists a, a, a remix of the song, Farewell Mix, made by, by uh, Trent Rester and Nine Inch Nails, 
and they uh, uh, played this remix uh, during their I Can't Seem to Wake Up tour as a tribute to, to Bowie. And, and Trent Reznor also uh, uploaded a studio version of this remix to, to SoundCloud and, and said that it was, he did that as a healing process after, after Bowie's death. 8th of January this year, 2023, uh, the American indie rock band Spoon also released a cover version of the song, on which would which would have been Bowie's uh, 76th birthday. And he ends with a guitar solo. That is the only guitar solo, I think, on the, on the whole, whole album. I can't remember any other guitar solos. There's still guitar playing, obviously, and, and some riffs here and there, but... Mm. Yeah, there is. Yeah, not a proper. I think most of the soloing is done by McCaslin on the saxophone, and this is uh, the only guitar solo, and a very nice guitar solo as well. And if we get to do more Bowie albums, we'll definitely go get to do more guitar solos and guitar themes because this is one of the albums that does not have as much as it usually would have. Ben Monder also he wasn't even in the two of the first sessions that they, they recorded Black Star. It's only attending the March sessions. There was some guitar playing by the bassist and Bowie himself before that. So, so there are certainly guitars on those tracks that were recorded earlier, but it's, it's certainly not a dominant, dominant instrument. Even on the next day, the previous albums, it's a lot of guitar, mm. uh, much more a guitar-based based album. Definitely a different direction here, which, which suits the album very well, of course. There aren't that many albums that has this little uh, guitar playing on it of, of the of Bowie albums. Must be Black Tie. Black Tie or Berlin tr- Trilogy, yeah. which is yeah. more based and you know, those type of type of albums. Although there are guitar, certainly guitars on, on those as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's not uh, my highest ranking song on the album. Um, I, I would still put Dollar Days ahead of this. And, and as I mentioned when we, when we were discussing Dollar Days, I, I still think Dollar Days is a better choice as the final, final track on the album. Uh, I feel it has more of a triumphant ending than this one has. I mean, it, 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 this one also has a quite positive and, and uplifting end, but, but the way Dollar Days starts very melancholic, it sort of feels even more fitting there, I would say. Yeah, I th- I think it belongs where it is, to be honest. I think it is a bit more uplifting than Dollar Days. Mm. But I'm I'm willing to try. And the next time I listen to the album, I'm going to put Dollar Days last. And we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think it's a wonderful song and um, a fitting ending, as many others on this album also could have been great endings. And I think all of, all of his last five albums have had songs in the end that could have been his last word like heat or uh, bring me the disco king his um ending with uh, another song with a saxophone solo and that is fitting i would say um as he started out as a saxophone player mm. well before or he was a vocalist even i think so it's a bit closing the circle uh, with this song but uh, if we Try to put this album outside of his <laughs> its placement in the end of his career. All the songs we we view it through the eyes of this is his last statement. This is his last music. Um, well, I'm positively sure that this is uh, 
masterpiece album, even if it would have come mm. in the middle of his career, uh, because it's so strong musically, lyrically, the whole whole package with the design and the the enigma surrounding it. Um, not enigma, that's a too strong word, but the secrecy from the man himself, making us now spending many hours trying to decipher. Uh, instead, he could have said this song is about so and so, and um, we wouldn't have as much fun trying to find out what what this means. And then it would have been more closed for us because when he didn't doesn't say this is a song about so and so, it's easier for us to relate it to things in our life and th- other things that we are interested in. He didn't give everything away. He didn't give everything away. I don't know, and uh, and I agree. It is uh, it's probably what uh, I would rank as one of the my top ten albums by Bowie, and I think that it would be the same wherever, whenever it came out. Mm. I agree. So now we have come to the end of this uh, very long podcast about uh, Black Star and uh, I was thinking maybe we could uh, end it with uh, talking a little bit about our personal favorite tracks on this album. If you should pick, uh, pick, a, pick a track, Tron, what would that be? Well, if I would pick one, it would probably be Black Star. But I'm thinking maybe that's a bit obvious. Maybe we shouldn't look at the ones that are most known. So no, I think you can certainly pick the most obvious one. Yeah, but I, I, I think um, I think when you when you listen to an album like we do now, you kind of also discover there are other favorites. And Dollar Days, I think, is the one that kind of stood a bit out to me today. Mm. It has um, some similarities to other artists that I really like. Uh, Radiohead with the piano in the intro and then it goes into this more acoustic guitar theme based song. And it's definitely melancholic but um, which I also happen to like but not in this um, depressing way. It's more um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think I agree. I, uh, for me, it stands between Black Star and, and Lazarus. Uh, both really, really good good tracks on this album. Uh, and, and again, as you say, maybe obvious choices, but uh, but you know they're obvious choices because they are that good as well. Absolutely. But, but also, I, I also agree with you on the more deep cut on this album. Uh, I would would have picked All the Days. I think I think that's a beautiful, uh, really, really good song. How about you, Chris? Well, it's hard um, as this album is so short. Um, We've discussed earlier that this is an album that is made for vinyl length. So he's been going uh, through his uh, pile of recorded tracks and ending up with these seven and uh, discarding No Plan and other tracks uh, recorded at the same sessions that came out uh, later. And he was absolutely right in uh, doing so because there's mm. seven great songs here. So it's not not one bad track. Everything is interesting, beautiful, uh, challenging. And you can uh, re-listen to this album as we've done uh, the last weeks uh, leading up to this and still discovering new 
colors and stuff in them. Uh, I would pick Lazarus as my favorite track. Uh, it's the one I've been listening to the most of these um, again and again. Still does not tire me. And uh, if I should choose another one as a sort of a deep, deep cut, I think it would be It's a Pity She's a Whore. Because um, that's the one I did not enjoy in the first listen. Uh, no, that's wrong. I, I didn't enjoy the demo uh, version mm. that came out of, of Sue. Um, and it's very rarely that I really dislike a Bowie track, but I, I did with that demo. And when the album came, I was, mm, why re-record this again? Um, but of course, the album version was uh, different, full of colors and intricacies and details and all sorts of things going on at the same time. It's, it sounds like a complete mess, but the more and more you listen to it, the more interesting this chaos uh, becomes. So I'd say that is the deep cut. because It's, uh, it's uh, one you can emerge yourself in and uh, still come up with something you didn't notice before. Mm. And by that, we have come to the end of, of this episode. Uh, we wish to thank everyone that listened to us. We hope you will like and follow the show on your podcast app of choice and perhaps share or tell a friend about it. In the next episode, we plan to continue on our, on our uh, reverse Bowie journey with the discussion on the next day from 2013. You can also follow us on our YouTube channel where we have music clips of the songs we are talking about or you can support us on Patreon where you can listen to the whole podcast along with music and videos. Links and description to these and other social media can be found on our webpage burningmidnightamp.captivate.fm And by that it's only to say goodbye to all our listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye. Keep burning those midnight amps. Thank you.